Hello there, welcome to NBA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're breaking down PFL number three, regular season, Kayla Harrison versus Marina Lakdakina in the main event. There's 11 total bouts on the card. We'll go over each fight, one fight at a time. We'll review the analytics, the background of the fighters, and give you our best pick to win each fight. And we'll also touch upon two prop bets for each fight. There's two multiple time PFL champions on the card. You got Ray Cooper III in the co-main event, and of course, Kayla Harrison in the main event. With all that said, guys, let's jump into it with the first fight in the card. We'll work our way all at the prelims, and then we'll finish up in the main card. Here we go. Next fight in the card is going to be a lightweight bout between two female fighters, Vanessa Mello from Brazil and Martina Gendrova from Czech Republic. Gendrova is 4-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights, 31 years old, 5-8 in height. We do not have a reach number on her. As for Vanessa Mello, who goes by Miss Simpatia, she's 11-8 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights, 34 years old, 3 years older than her opponent, 5-5, five five, about 3 inches shorter, with a 65-inch reach. We do not have a listed gym for Martina Gendrova. As for the numbers coming in on Tapology, Vanessa Mello is the favorite, getting 78% of the votes, 22% of the votes coming in for Gendrova. I do agree. I think Vanessa Mello is not only the better fighter, she's fought a much better level of talent than Martina Gendrova. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the screen in front of you gives you some basic information of the fighters. I'll just review that for you guys who are listening on the podcast. For Mello, she's an 11-year pro. She's a boxer. Forward pressure is her biggest strength, and her weakness is wrestling. As for Martina, she's also an 11-year pro, a balanced fighter. Boxing is her strength, and grappling is her weakness. Both of these ladies here do not fare very well on the ground. If they get taken down, they can get back up. For both fighters, usually their path to victory does not involve a ground game or ground strategy. Looking at the fighter profile of Vanessa Mello, she was born in Brazil, now based out of Sao Paulo, Brazil. She started her MMA career in the regional promotions down in Brazil. She fought in Battlefield FC, XFC, Future FC, along with the PFL, and also had a stint in the UFC. She's the former SFT flyweight champion. She signed to the UFC in 2019 as a late replacement. She went 1-4 in the UFC, was let go 2021 after a win. Her most notable opponents, she's fought some people you're going to recognize here. Tracy Cortez, Irene Aldana, Carol Rosa, Marina Marias, Molly McCann. Her most recent opponent was Sarah Marias. 2021 decision win. That was her last fight, and that was also a fight in the UFC. She came in as a plus 160 underdog, and she won the fight. Sarah Marias is 6-7 and seven overall and 2-5 and five in the UFC. Not the greatest of opponents. Nonetheless, she got the victory there. A prior fight, Tracy Cortez, 2019 decision loss. She came in as a plus 195 underdog. Irene Aldana, 2019 decision loss. She was a plus 400 underdog in that fight, but she goes to decision in both those fights. She went the distance against Cortez and Aldana and against Carol Rosa as well. She lost her decision, 2020. She missed weight by five and a half pounds coming to that fight. She's a plus 250 underdog. The first round was pretty even until Rosa gets a late takedown. Rosa took her down again in round two, and this time she doesn't let her back up. She does not have good stand-up defense, and wrestling is her weakness. She also fought Marina Marias, who fought in the PFL last year. She had a decision win over her in 2019. And then Molly McCann, way back seven years ago, Molly McCann in XFC. She had a decision win over Molly McCann. As most people know, Molly McCann is currently in the UFC. She has a 5-3 and three record in the UFC. The bottom line is Vanessa Mello has fought some very good fighters, much better opponents than Martina Jandrova. Some qualities I like about Vanessa Mello, she's faced good competition. She's a very durable fighter, has not been finished, shows good cardio. Likes to move forward and set the pace. Even against better opponents, she tries to set the pace and pressure until she gets beat up and she can't do it. But in this fight here, I expect her to come out and try to manage the middle of the cage, force her opponent back on her heels. Some of my concerns for Vanessa Mello, she comes up short against good competition. We mentioned some of the opponents she lost to. She missed weight in a recent fight. She's displayed poor takedown defense. And in the case of the Rosa fight, she also couldn't get back up when she got taken down. That shouldn't be an issue in this fight because Martina Jandrova likes to fight in the feet as well, but just pointing out the weaknesses in Vanessa Mello's game. As for Martina Jandrova, she's from Czech Republic. She had no amateur experience. She's been a pro MMA fighter since 2011. You're looking at her record like, what, four and two, six total fights? Yeah, has not been very active to say the least. She fights in an orthodox boxing 
acting stance, her most notable opponent, Tamiris Vidal, 2021 decision loss. Vidal is 6-1 overall, recently fought in LFA, pretty good level opponent. She came out aggressive in that fight, Martina that is. She came out early, set the pace, backed up her opponent, looked very confident. She then got her head caught in like a guillotine choke, a standing guillotine choke. That sort of slowed her down, and the momentum in that fight started to go towards Tamiris Vidal. If you watch the early part of the first round, it looks good for Martina. She comes out aggressive, like I said. She comes out confident. But the third round of that fight, she's not even the same fighter anymore. Her hands are way down. She's much more labored in her movement. And so Tamiris Vidal ends up taking round two and round three. She also has bad stand-up defense, just like Vanessa Mello. In round two, she just gets fully mounted. She's got Tamiris Vidal on top of her, just raining down strikes, and she has no answer for it, cannot get back up. And her last fight against Jacqueline Cavalcanti, 2022 split decision win in her PFL Challenger Series debut just a few months ago. She came in at minus 110 on the money line. Cavalcanti is only 2-1 overall. In round one of that fight, she gets backed up early, gets tagged, definitely gets a little bit stunned, does a good job of getting through round one, but she clearly lost round one of that fight. In round two, she comes back with her own heat, actually rocks Cavanti, gets her on her heels, shows some ability in her hands to punch, shows some good boxing. In round two, she shows also a variety of strikes, working to the body, working to the head, just overall a nice display of boxing ability in round two of that fight. In round three, Jacqueline Cavanti gets more of the momentum back. I believe that Jacqueline Cavanti won round three. Unfortunately, only one of the judges thought that. Went to a split decision, and of course, Martina Jadrova gets the win. I personally think she lost the fight. It was a very close fight. Jacqueline Calvaconti, in my opinion, is not as good as Vanessa Mello, and neither is Martina Jandrova. Those are like very low-level fighters. In the case of Vanessa Mello, she was very low-level for UFC, but for PFL quality, I believe she's average, if not above average, in this division. Then she comes in here with a ton more experience, has fought better opponents. If the fight goes to round two, round three, which it probably will, it's a women's fight, she'll have much more energy. And one more notable opponent that Martina Jandrova fought. She fought Valentina Shevchenko in a Muay Thai bout years ago, couldn't even find it on Tapology, and I guess she had her rib broken by Shevchenko in that fight. I'm not too surprised. Shevchenko is an animal. The things I like about Martina, she's a natural striker and a very balanced boxer, very durable, has only been finished once in her career. Now was a neck crank last year by Carolina Sobic. Sobic is currently 4-0, and she was 2-0 at the time, so maybe she's a legitimate prospect, and a neck crank's kind of a weird submission. When she sits down on her punches and throws as hard as she can, she can crack anyone in this division. She had that on display in her last fight against Jacqueline Cavalcanti. And lastly, she's got pretty good judo throws. At the same time, if she goes to the ground, she could be exposed, but her judo throws are pretty good. My concerns for Martina Jandrova, she could be a little more active. In 2019, she fought four times, very active. 2020, only once. 2021, only once as well. Granted, the last few years have been a little tougher because of COVID-19, so I'm not sure if that played a part, but she hasn't been very active the last few years, only two fights in the last two years. Notably, though, this will be her second fight in 2022. She needs to improve her stand-up defense, especially as she gets tired, which is probably for every fighter. Your hands start to come down, gets harder to keep them up, your reaction time also starts to slow, and later in her fights, in general, she keeps her hands pretty low, and she's willing to trade, and she's got her chin wide open. But as the fight goes on, and again, expect this fight to go to round three, Vanessa Mel's going to have an easier time to tag her if she doesn't have the cardio to keep her hands up, the discipline to keep her head movement, she becomes a very easy target later in the fight. And lastly, her grappling ability is more or less non-existent. She has some takedown throws, she can get her fighter to the ground, but once she's on the ground, she gets reversed pretty easily. Against a good grappler, both fighters here would have issues. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Jandrova vs. Vidal from 2021, Jandrova vs. Calvaconti earlier this year, Jandrova vs. Bars 2015, that was a Muay Thai bout seven years ago, Melo vs. Rosa 2020, and Melo vs. Aldana from 2019. My final thoughts on these two fighters. For experience in fighter IQ, Vanessa Miller has a big advantage, has fought the better competition, has fought almost triple the amount of mixed martial arts fights. They've both been pros for 11 years, but Vanessa Miller has fought 19 fights in those 11 years, whereas Martina Jandrova has fought only six. For cardio, also an edge to Melo. I've seen her late in fights. I've seen her against good fighters in UFC go the full distance. 
Martina Jandrova, just fought a few months ago, did not look great in round three. Now, round three somehow went through the scorecards. They gave her the win there, but she looked suspect in round three. She was wide open for punches. Her hands were down low. She looked very tired and labored. As for finishing ability, neither fighter here is a very good finisher. It makes sense. It's a 155-pound women division. Neither one of them seems to have much KO power or submission ability. I expect this fight to go the full distance. For boxing, about equal. I think Mello will have more output at the end of the fight. I think she'll be a little busier. We'll have better cardio. They both have some weapons, and I think Jandrova actually hits a little bit harder when she's got her full energy. But for Melo, if she can get through round one, get into round two or three, that power will start to diminish. And I believe that at that point, her volume would take over. As for grappling, non-existent. We talked about both their deficiencies in grappling. As for who has more heart, more passion, who wants to fight more, I believe Martina Jandrova fought very well in her last fight against Cavacanti. As for Vanessa Mello, she's a veteran, 34 years old, almost 20 total mixed martial arts fights, had a run in the UFC. They're not going to give up. They're going to keep going forward. This is an important fight for both of them. It's the beginning of the PFL season. I don't see any one of these two fighters tapping out easily or trying to give up at any point. I do like Vanessa Mello to win the fight by decision. The biggest reason being, again, is because of the fighter experience. We don't have a money line yet on this. It's not out. But my guesstimated money line is going to be minus 275 for Vanessa Mello and plus 210 for Jandrovic. The two props will like the most for this fight. The fight going to decision. Obviously, it's a women's bout. We don't have a line that yet, but when it comes out, I'll probably be adding that to my parlays. I have a lot of confidence in this fight going to the full distance. The second prop, Vanessa Mello by decision. Now, again, if you like Martina Jandrova, take her by decision. These guys are very evenly matched. I expect a good hard-fought fight. I think Vanessa Mello is the one who finishes a little bit better at the end. A little more cardio, a little better technique, and again, the experience should be able to help her carry this to a decision win. That's the breakdown, guys. We'd like Vanessa Mello to win the fight by decision. Let me know what you guys think. Are we off base? Do you like Jandrova to win the fight? Do you have another prop that you want to mention to us? We always welcome your feedback. Thanks again for stopping by. Please like and subscribe, and we're on to the next video. Deuces. Next up, we have the second of two women's bouts in the prelim card. It's a lightweight battle between Olena Kaliznik from Ukraine, who goes by the Canon, and Abby Montes from Mexico, who goes by Brave. Montes is undefeated at 3-0. She hails specifically out of Guadalajara, Mexico, 22 years old, 5'6 in height with 67-inch reach. As for the Canon, she's 5-4 overall. On a bit of a rough streak, though, she's 1-4 in her last five fights. She's from Ukraine, but now currently based out of Fuck It, Thailand. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Fuck it, Thailand, where she trains out of Tiger Muay Thai. 32 years old, 5'9 and high with a 68-inch reach. According to the public votes in Tapology, Montes is the big favorite, getting 93% of the votes, only 7% coming in from Klesnik. I do agree. I think Montes should win the fight. If you don't recall, Montes is the fighter who fought Clarissa Shields recently, the very hyped-up prospect for PFL, who's the former boxer, or I guess still a boxer, but now moving into mixed martial arts, and Montes defeated her recently as a big underdog. Some basic information about these two fighters. Klesnik has been a pro for eight years. She uses a boxing style. Her strength is in striking and boxing with her hands. Her weaknesses and grappling. As for Montes, she's a three-year pro, a little bit less experienced, very good at grappling and wrestling. On the feet, though, she's not so bad. She's serviceable. I think she could hold her own against Alina Kaliznik. Let's look at the profile for Alina Kaliznik. She's from Ukraine, has done some training at Tiger Muay Thai and Global Fight Gym in Moscow, Russia. She didn't fight for three years, from 2018 to 2021. Some of her prior opponents, her last fight against Larissa Pacheco, 2021 round one KO loss. She came into that fight as a big underdog, plus 450 to be specific. In that fight, Pacheco was able to overpower her, especially with the body locks. I will give Kaliznik this. In that fight, she does put Push the pace. She is walking forward, except she walks forward right into a right hand or a left hand. I can't remember which one and gets the lights put out. Pretty nasty KO. Loses in round one against a very hard-hitting Larissa Pachanko. Again, though, I do want to mention she came forward in that fight. She wasn't backing up. She was giving it her best. A prior fight, Taylor Guardado, 2021 decision loss. She came in as a minus 110 pick in that fight. Guardado is 3-2 overall. Another prior opponent, Felicia Spencer, a notable name, doing pretty well. She's currently in the UFC. 2018 round two submission loss to Felicia Spencer. Spencer's got a 9-3 overall record. She got out-wrestled in that fight. 
Now, Felicia Spencer is a bit of a grappler and a wrestler, and that would be a good person to compare to Abby Montez. Kolesnik could not overcome the wrestling in that fight, eventually loses in round one by submission. One more opponent, Pam Bam Bam Sorensen, who's currently in Bellator with a 9-4 overall record. She lost to her as well via a round one submission loss. So submission defense is not necessarily a strong suit for Kolesnik. Some things I do like about Lena Kolesnik, she has been in there with some better fighters than Abby Montez, and obviously we just talked about some of those names. She throws with some power, and when she really sits down on her punches, she could clearly hurt her opponent. She also fights out of a southpaw stance, which is always an adjustment for the opponent. Some of my concerns for Kolesnik, she did miss weight recently. She's on a four-fight losing streak. She hasn't won a fight in five years. The last opponent that she beat five years ago has an 0-2 overall record and hasn't fought since 2017. She seems to have some durability issues. She's been finished in three of her last four fights. If you look back at the topology in Kolesnik, she's got five total wins, right? The combined record of those five opponents, 1-12. I look back at those opponents. Some were like 0-2, 0-1. One was 1-6. It was a list of some very not competitive mixed martial arts fighters, put it that way. She has very raw boxing. Now, she hits hard at times, but her boxing is raw, not very technical. Later in the fight, round two, round three, when she gets fatigued, it becomes very sloppy, leaves herself wide open for counters. Looking at the profile for Abby Montez, who trains out of Mexico. She's at Lobo Gym in Guadalajara, Mexico, with the likes of Alexa Grasso, Irene Aldana, and Alejandro Lara. We're going to talk about one opponent for Abby Montez. She's only fought three total fights, but her last opponent is the one we want to talk about the most. Clarissa Shields, 2021 split decision win. It should have been clear unanimous decision for Abby Montez, at least two rounds to one with no doubt about it. But because Clarissa Shields is a big time prospect, they're trying to beef her up in the PFL. She's been doing interviews. She's there at events. She does some commentating. In this fight, Montez comes in as a plus 195 underdog. She beats Shields on the ground. That's just about it. On the feet, she holds her own. Clarissa Shields doesn't hurt her, doesn't do anything amazing. But Abby just takes the fight to where she wants it, takes control, gets on the ground. And Clarissa, being so inexperienced, is actually trying to box with her off of her back, just showing how much she doesn't know about this game and how much she needs to learn. It was an amazing win for Abby, who came into that fight 2-0, had only fought two fights prior. She's a well-rounded athlete, very good grappling ability. At 22 years old, she's 10 years younger here than Elena Kolesnik. I believe she comes in with still a lot of room to grow, but still should be able to take this fight to the ground where she wants it. The strong points for Abby Montez, grappling and wrestling as we talked about. She also uses a very nice lower leg kick, which she uses to measure distance and sort of set the early pace in the fight. And it can't be overlooked that she did deal with Clarissa Shields' elite boxing. She held her own. She did not get cracked. She had good footwork. She had good head movement. Clarissa Shields could not tag her. When you think about Clarissa Shields, whose main thing is boxing, right? That's also the main attribute for Elena Kolesnik. She wants to box. That's her strongest attribute. Now, she's not as good as Clarissa Shields, I don't believe, at boxing. But in that fight, Abby Montez dealt with the boxing of Clarissa Shields, an elite-level boxer with no problem. I'm pretty sure she could deal with Elena Kolesnik's boxing. And last but not least, the training partners for Abby Montez, world-class, high-level, UFC-level athletes in the gym with her every day. The two obvious question marks for Abby Montez, she's only 22 years old, and she really hasn't been tested. We'll see what happens in this fight, but I don't believe that Elena Kolesnik is going to be the test for her. I think she grinds her out on the ground. Not surprised if she gets a finish, but most likely by decision, it's a women's bout. Some of the prior fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Montez vs. Shields from last year, Kalisnik vs. Pacheco from last year, and Kalisnik vs. Spencer from 2020. Look down below in the description here on YouTube, and you're going to see three links available as part of our free video library. My final thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, I gotta give the edge to the Ukrainian Alina Kalisnik. I'm not confusing that with fighter IQ or saying that she's beat a bunch of good opponents. No, she's fought more fights, clearly, nine compared to three. She's 10 years older. She's been training longer. 
I believe she just simply has the cage time and the experience in the octagon. Now, she hasn't beat those opponents, but I have to give her the edge here in experience. For fighter IQ, I give the edge to Abby Montez. She's more well-rounded. She could wrestle, she can grapple, and she could fight in the feet. For cardio, I also give the edge to Abby Montez. She showed she can go three full rounds with Clarissa Shields recently, had a great gas tank, showed no signs of fatigue. As for Kalisnik, we talked about it before. She looked pretty tired in round two or three of some of her recent fights. Neither fighter has shown amazing finishing ability. For Abby Montez, she has one finish, but that was at a lower level promotion. For Kalisnik, she has like four or five finishes from early on in her career against, as we talked about it, very low level fighters. So neither fighter seems to have very good finishing ability at this point. As for boxing, I believe Abby Montez is the better boxer. She's more technical. She went in there against Clarissa Shields, held her own. Olena Kalisnik, that's what she hangs her hat on, boxing, but she's not very good at it. And when she gets tired, it just sort of goes out the window. For grappling and wrestling, Abby Montez will have a big advantage. And last but not least, who has more heart? I'm not really sure yet. We've got a 22-year-old Abby Montez who's gone in there against a hyped opponent, did a good job, looked pretty confident. I don't believe either fighter is going to come in here and coward out. They're going to give us a good effort. It's important for both fighters to win. It's obviously the PFL regular season. The two props I like the most for this fight, the fight going to the decision. I like that because even if Elena Kalisnik gets taken down by Abby Montez, I believe Abby Montez has a lot of laying and praying, eats a clock. The second prop would be Abby Montez by decision. The money line probably opens up around minus 400 for Montez, plus 325 for Kalisnik. We're guesstimating we don't have that money line available just yet. So if you imagine if it's minus 400 when it opens, probably closes around minus 550, minus 600. Those two props might provide a little more value for you. The fight with the distance, which we don't have that line available yet, or Abby Montez by decision. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks again for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. As always, we welcome feedback. Give us some comments, suggestions. Is there a prop you like that we didn't talk about? Put it down below. All right, guys, we're on to the next video. Deuces. Next up, we have a welterweight bout between Gleison Tabao from Brazil and Jara Hussein Al-Salawai, who goes by the Jordanian Lion. The Jordanian Lion is 17-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. About to be 30 years old, 5'11 in height. We do not have a reach number on him. He trains out of the Source MMA, which is in Jordan. As for the Brazilian, Tabao, who's a former UFC fighter and a veteran of the sport at 36 and 15 overall, he's fought a hell of a lot of fights. 4 1 his last five fights. He's now based out of Coconut Creek, Florida, where he trains out of ATT. Tabao is 38 years old in nine months, so he'll be 39 years old sometime this year. Almost exactly a 10 year age difference between him and Al Salawai. Tabao is 5'8 in height with a 68 inch reach. So, about a 3 inch height advantage there for Salawai. I don't believe that's going to be a big factor in the fight, except for when they're working in the clinch but he will have a height advantage and maybe even a reach advantage, though we don't have his reach number. As for the public vote on Tapology, it looks like Al Salawai is the favorite, getting 70% of the votes compared to 30% coming in for Tabao. At first glance, I was siding with Gleason Tabao. I thought his ground game, he has a bunch of, you know, split decision wins, you know, it always seems to fall his way, yada, 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 the UFC record, which we'll talk about. And then once you look into this more, you realize that Gleason Tabao is slowing down. There are some deficiencies. I believe that Hussein Al Salawai gets the win. Not by a finish. Gleason is very durable, but by a decision. Let's go over some basic stats in these two fighters. For Tabao, he's been fighting for 23 years. My goodness. He's a wrestler by trait, very durable. If there's one weakness in his game right now at this point in his career, it's that he's slowing down a little bit. He's not reacting as fast. He has a speed disadvantage. As for the Jordanian fighter, nine years as a pro, his fighting style is balanced. He's good on the ground, good in the feet, very patient, doesn't overdo it. Probably his strongest suit is his grappling, and that's on the feet and on the ground. So for example, when he fought Carl Booth back in 2017, they fought twice. In their second fight, though, he gets pushed against a cage. Initially, the other guy has the position on him. He reverses position, turns into a body lock, takes the guy to the ground. Does that like three times in that single fight there against Carl Booth. So his grappling is very good, even when he's in a weaker position. There's not many weaknesses for Asawai. Very balanced fighter, but I did see him get takedown a few times. And in this fight, he'll have to be on his guard because Gleason Tabao is a good wrestler. Let's talk background on these two fighters. We'll talk about the veteran first. Gleason Tabao, born in Brazil as Johnny Gleason, Herculano Alves. His middle name was Herculano. 
Herculano, or maybe he still is. It's a good nickname for this guy. He has like no neck, very jacked, doesn't really gas out. And at the age of 38, you know, he's still been fighting pretty good the last few years. But uh, yeah, Herculano, that's the way I think of him now, Hercules. He started mixed martial arts at the age of 13 years old. He began his amateur career at 15, former state champion in BJJ and wrestling in Brazil. Initially trained at Kimura Team in Brazil before moving over to American Top Team in Florida. Has a black belt in BJJ. He fought in the UFC from 2006 to 2018, a nice 12 year run. He had a 16 and 12 overall record in the UFC. He fought many top level fighters in the UFC. We'll go over some of those names when we talk about his prior opponents. He signed with the PFL last year. He's two and one in the PFL. He earned fight of the night and submission of the night in the UFC. And Gleason has the most takedowns in UFC lightweight division history with 84 total over the course of his career. He has the most split decision wins in UFC history with five. And mind you, he just had a split decision win two fights ago against Rory McDonald. Let's take a look at some of the prior opponents for Gleason Tabau. He fought Micah Terrell, 2021, round one armbar win. He came in as a minus 350 favorite. Micah Terrell is, uh, let's just say this, below average. Not, not impressive. It looks good on paper, but not a very impressive opponent. His prior fight. Here, this one's very interesting. You see Rory McDonald on paper, 2021, split decision win. You're thinking, very good. He was a plus 625 underdog. But most people believe that Rory McDonald won that fight. I watched it twice during film study. Yeah, it was close, and I guess I could see how Rory McDonald probably should have won the fight, but two judges in that room thought that the uh, fight went to Gleason. He ends up getting the win there. I do want to note, in round one, Rory McDonald had a very deep rear naked choke on Gleason, and Gleason fought it off. The dude is very tough. Yes, he's getting older, but with that no neck, it's hard to get a rear naked choke on him. He's still very good in, in grappling situations. Can still play good defense. He'll need it here against Alsawai, who likes to grapple and likes to get on top. But nonetheless, interesting fight. He got the win on paper, but uh, most people thought he lost the fight. Now, here's some other names in his tapology that you're going to recognize. Islam Makachev, 2018, round one TKO loss. He came in as a plus 250 underdog in that fight. Tony Ferguson, 2015, round one submission loss. He was a plus 205 underdog in that fight. Khabib Nurmagomedov, 2012, decision loss. He came in as a minus 165 favorite against Khabib Nurmagomedov. Wow, times have changed. The prior fight before that, Rafael Dos Anjos, 2011, split decision win. He came in as a slight favorite in that fight as well. Another opponent, Jim Miller, 2010, decision loss as a plus 110 favorite. He also fought Jeremy Stevens and he also fought Nick Diaz. He's fought some of the best of the best. A few things I like about the veteran. He's got tons of cage experience as we just talked about. He's got very strong wrestling acumen. At the same time, I think some of that's kind of slowed down for him. It's not as easy for him to get takedowns. He lacks the speed to shoot and get in around the hips of his opponents. So his wrestling is not as good as it used to be. Also doesn't seem to command the top control as much as he used to be able to do, but still a very good wrestler. He fights in a southpaw stance. It's always an adjustment for the opponent. His boxing technique is raw. It's not necessarily fluid. He throws one punch, two punches at a time at most, but when he throws hard, he can crack. He could definitely hurt somebody. And he's always got that potential to hurt his opponent. He throws hard all the way throughout the entire fight. And he's very durable. Even at the age of 38 years old, he's been only finished three times in the last 10 years. Now, the concerns for Gleason Tabau. Father time is undefeated. His reaction time has slowed. You can notice that in some of his fights. For example, when he fought against Zeverino, Zeverino was picking him apart with a simple jab. It was snappy. It was pretty quick. But you can see Gleason sort of catching it, you know, not reacting in time. You can see the reaction time has simply become a factor. That's a factor of father time. I believe it gets an opponent like this who's pretty quick. He throws tons of combinations with kicks and punches. He should have a significant speed advantage here over the older fighter. And a big criticism of Gleason Tabal's game is the low volume. At times, he just stares at his opponent, looks for one strike, very low volume. If he can't get a takedown, he'll just throw one punch at a time. He did that in the fight against Rory McDonald. I have no idea how he ends up winning that fight. He especially did that in the fight against Severino. He ends up losing that fight because he's just standing there for a long period of time, not throwing much of anything. I don't believe it's fatigue. I believe it's just part of the way he fights. He's looking for one hard punch, doesn't throw many combinations. 
His boxing is a bit raw, as we talked about before, but he's got a lot of power. And so as a fighter, maybe sometimes he's holding on too much of the idea that if I could just land that one punch, right? Now looking at the fighter profile for Al Salawahi. He was born in Jordan. He went 4-0 as an amateur in Cage Warriors. He made his pro debut in 2013. He lost a second pro match to Carl Booth via round one TKO. He avenged that loss 2017 with a decision win over Carl Booth. He's the former Brave CF champion. His prior opponents, he fought Michael Lilly this year, got a round one KO win as a minus 590 favorite. He landed a perfect knee as Lilly was sort of going down for a takedown or going down for something for some reason. He catches him with a perfect knee right up against the face, more or less knocks the guy to the fence. At that point, one or two more ground strikes and the fight's over. Very impressive win. Shows his knockout ability, his speed, ability to adjust. He saw the takedown coming and lands the perfect knee. His prior opponent, Ishmael Naradiev, 2021 round two TKO win from leg kicks. There's a link down below to watch that film. It's not the whole fight. It's just a part of the fight in round two where he ends up getting the TKO. He basically just kicks the shit out of Ishmael's leg and Ishmael cannot deal with it. And eventually he just goes down. And mind you, Ishmael Nardiev is 21-5 and five overall, not necessarily just a can. Pretty good Russian fighter. Now, here's two names you're going to recognize. Carlton Harris, 2018, round one TKO win. Harris is currently in the UFC. He's got a 2-1 record in the UFC, and he got knocked out by Al Salwai in 2018, about four years ago. Another name, Daniel Scatizi, 2017 decision win. Scatizi is currently fighting in Bellator, and he's got a 2-2 two two record in Bellator. So this character, Al Salwai, he's fought some pretty good competition. 17-3 overall, 20 total fights, good winning percentage, but he's actually been in there with some good opponents, UFC level, Bellator level. It's about the time for him now to make it to one of these big organizations. I think he has enough striking acumen, enough speed, enough durability to keep up with Gleason Devout and eventually over the course of the fight land more volume, and that'll be his path to victory. Some things I like about Al Salawai. Very good grappling game. I believe in this matchup, his grappling will be a little bit better than Tabao. The wrestling aspect of Tabao's game, still pretty good when he get himself into a good position to get a takedown. But over the course of three rounds, he's going to fade off a little bit. And if Asalawai gets some top position on the ground, get some ground control, that can be the path to victory for him on the scorecards or maybe even getting a finish of a TKO of some kind, just being able to land a lot of the ground strikes. When he's got top position on the ground, he's a very busy fighter, landing elbows, hammer fists, a variety of strikes. He's a very balanced fighter. He can fight on the ground. He's got good submission skills, and he also should be the quicker fighter here on the feet with more volume. He's also showing some good finishing ability. He's finished three of his last four fights. He also finished his PFL debut halfway through round one. My concerns for Al Salawai in this matchup. These guys are the same weight class, obviously, but Tabao is five foot eight, very thick. You got a longer fighter here in Al Salawai. If you watch Al Salawai's film, he looks taller and longer and almost at the same weight of Tabao. If he gets top control on top of Al Salawai, I wonder if that could be a problem. Could he chew up enough clock to win a round? So I'm just kind of thinking that could be one of the issues in this fight is if Al Salawai gets off balance when he throws, leaves himself open for a takedown, gives a back control for some reason, there at least could be one round there taken by Tabao. And just to go with that same thought, I've seen film of Al Salawai where he can't get up from his back. Now, is Gleason Tabao keeping people down recently? No, he's getting takedowns in fights, but doesn't keep people down. I believe Al Salawai should be able to get back up. But again, I've seen him on film not get up and give up an entire round. You just need two rounds to win this fight. So even if Tabao just wins one of the first two rounds, it's going to be a sweat now in round three to make sure that Al Salawai has to stay out of his grip, don't get taken down again. I just believe he'll be too fatigued to actually execute a takedown. And that's where Al Salawai should have his best round in round three. But he needs to secure round one or two Tabal's a veteran he has a knack for getting split decision wins you don't want to score cards here in a close fight against this guy who just seems to have the lucky charm on his shoulder when it comes to split decision wins the fights we watched to bring down this film we watched also lawai versus lily which was this year also lawai versus nardiev also lawai versus booth Tabal versus mcdonald and Tabal versus terrell to watch those fights those five links are down below in the description here on youtube all right final thoughts on this fight experience wise the edge clearly goes to Tabal. Fighter IQ-wise, I want to give the edge to Tabao. He's been in there with everyone, but this kid, Al Salawai, looks very good. He's 17-3 for a reason. 
Albie's got good fighter IQ, makes good decisions, very well balanced. So fighter IQ wise, even though Tibau has tons of ring time against a lot of veterans, has gone a distance against guys like Khabib Nurmagomedov, his IQ is being affected in part by his slowing down, his lack of speed and father time. As for cardio, I give the edge to the younger fighter. I think, again, Tabao in round three is fading hard recently. Round one and two does a pretty good job. But round three, he already throws low volume. He has some fatigue on top of that. I believe that Asalawai will be a much fresher fighter in round three. As for finishing ability, I give an edge to Asalawai. Tabao's path to victory these days involves going to the decision. For boxing, much sharper than the side of Asalawai. He throws a variety of strikes and also has a significant speed advantage. For grappling, again, not to be repetitive, I think late in the fight, Asalawai will have an advantage in the grappling because he'll have more energy. But round one one and round two, I believe they'll be evenly matched, and I can see Gleason getting a takedown. I can see Silwai getting takedown. I can see both of them having moments of position control. So about equal in the grappling department. As for who has more heart, I can't take anything from Tabao. I'm going to give a slight edge at 38 years old. He's still fighting, training at a good gym, trying to get the million-dollar purse. Who says he can't do it? We saw Arlovsky win the fight last weekend against Collier. We're guesstimating the money line will be around minus 175 to minus 200 for Silwai and around plus 150 to plus 160 for Gleason Tabao. That's just a guess. We don't have any line on this available right now. The two props I like for this fight, the fight going the distance. Again, we talked about how durable Tabao is. At the same time, he slows down. So why is going to have opportunities to hurt him, but not get him out of there? The old man is very tough. So the fight going the distance, excellent prop. And the decision prop for So why? I believe the fight, again, goes to decision. He has the edge, has the volume, gets some position control, and earns himself a W. Depends on the money line. If the money line's around a pick him, around minus 175 or under you still could just take up the money line to win outright and not have to worry about the prop but again let's say it goes to a close decision the legend of Tabao and his split decisions shows its ugly head you might want to go for that distance prop again for the fight just going the distance that's the breakdown guys i hate to choose against the brazilian veteran i just think that the tools are on the side of alistair why he's got a speed advantage a youth advantage he's the guy coming up right now as for Gleason Tabal, he's not done. He's not done by any means, but reminds me again of the Severino matchup where there's a speed disadvantage. And a guy's a good striker, very athletic. Every fight now that Tabal fights from this point on at 38 plus, he's not going to get faster. His cardio is not going to improve. It is what it is. And so I think we're seeing a bit of a decline for Tabal. And so why he's coming in here hungry. It's his time. I believe he makes a mark this season of the PFL. Not sure if he gets a championship, but he's going to make his mark this year and get some W's. Thanks for joining us, guys. Please like and subscribe. And we're on to the next one. Next up, we have another women's bout in the lightweight division at 155 pounds between the Brazilian fighter Larissa Pacheco and the Kazakhstani fighter Zamzagul Fezelanova. Zamzagul is 7-1 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights. She's 29 years old in 10 months, about to be 30. 5-7 in height, we do not have a reach number on her. Based upon watching film, I'd say her reach is comparable to her height, so about 70 inches. As for Pacheco, the PFL veteran, she's 15-4 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights. She's out of Brazil, 27 years old, 5-6 in height, so 1 inch shorter than Zamzagul with a 69-inch reach. She's out of Bulldog and Formiga team. Look at the numbers on Tapa. It looks like Pacheco's the big favorite, getting 84% of the votes, only 16% coming in for Faisal Lenova. I totally agree. I think Larissa Pacheco is the big favorite here when the money line comes out, probably comes out around minus 450 to minus 500, then gets steamed up over the week and then ends up somewhere like minus 700 to minus 800 by the time the fight goes off. It's easy to see how Pacheco could finish this fight with a TKO. We'll break it down for you guys, go over some of the details of each of the fighters, but quite frankly, this is probably the easiest breakdown of the entire card. Pacheco will win this fight. Some basic details on the two fighters. Pacheco's been a pro for 10 years. She's got a balanced fighting style. Does some kicking, does some punching, very good on the ground. Where she's most effective is in the grappling department. Her biggest weakness, Kayla Harrison. She's fought Kayla Harrison twice. We'll talk about those two fights. That's the only thing stopping her from getting a PFL championship. Ashra Zamzagul, seven-year pro experience, uses Muay Thai approach. Judo throws are one of her strong suits. She likes that like neck throw. It works in the women's MMA. It doesn't seem to work in men's MMA. I'm not sure it'll work here against Pacheco either. The most glaring weakness I see in Zamzagul's game is her head movement. 
She's got her head very high up, uses a Muay Thai stance, got some decent combinations, but she leaves her head right there for counters, and so I believe that's a big factor in this fight with a power puncher like Larissa Pacheco. Looking at the profile of Larissa Pacheco, she was born and raised in Brazil. She began Muay Thai at the age of 15 years old. She fought her first amateur bout a year later at the age of 16. She won the Bantamweight title at Jungle Fight 63 over Irina Donna. She went 0-2 to the UFC before being let go. She suffered a really bad arm injury that required almost three years of rehab and had multiple surgeries. That was a big contributing factor to why she got let go. Her most notable opponents, Kayla Harrison. She fought her twice in 2019. They went a total of eight rounds, five rounds in one fight, three rounds in the other fight. To go eight rounds with that animal, I know it's three years ago, still very impressive. It shows the durability, the fighter IQ. No one survives eight total rounds with Kayla Harrison without getting submitted. Another prior opponent, Carol Rosa, 2018 round two submission win in WOCS 49. Rosa has a 4-1 record in the UFC. Another name you'll recognize, Jessica Andrade. Now, she lost to her 2014 round one submission loss in the UFC. That was her first UFC fight, and she came in as a late replacement. What a way for the UFC to welcome Pacheco. Her next loss in UFC was against Jermaine Durandamy. That was a 2015 round two TKL. She suffers that loss because of a hard leg kick that she blocks with her arm and her arm breaks. From there, it leads to a three-year layoff, lots of damage, multiple surgeries, and one more opponent, Irene Aldana, who she faced in 2013, round three TKL win. Irene Aldana is currently on the UFC roster, and she's six and four in the UFC. Some strong points on Pacheco's game. She's very durable. We just talked about it. She's only been finished twice in her career. She went eight full rounds with Kaylee Harrison. Extremely durable. I don't see Zambagul finishing her in this fight. Very good grappler. She's got good submission defense. And in one of the fights against Kaylee Harrison, she gets back control. And you hear the announcers saying, oh my gosh, I've never seen Kaylee Harrison in trouble before. Pacheco has an excellent finish rate. She's finished seven of her last eight wins, four by TKO and three by submission. The weaknesses in Pacheco's game. She's come up short against elite competition. She's lost against Macy Chasson, Randomy, Andrade, and twice against Kaylee Harrison. All good names, but the bottom line is when she gets to that top level, that elite level fighter, she seems to come up short. Asher Zamzagul Faisal Lenova. She's from Kazakhstan. She fights out of an orthodox boxing stance. She's fought for a Lash Pride FC and Fight Night Global prior to the PFL. Her most notable opponents, she fought Liana Jojua, 2016 split decision win at a Lash Pride FC. Jojua is currently on the UFC roster with a 1-3 total record in the UFC. Zamzagul is able to use that neck toss in that fight against Jojua, does it multiple times, gets top control, wins by split decision, but I thought she won the fight unanimously. One more opponent to talk about, Aline Gorchin. 2018 round one TKO win. She used the same neck toss again in that fight. I don't believe that's going to work against Larissa Pacheco, who's got a very good grappling game. In any event, that's how she gets the fight to the ground against Alina, does some ground and pound, gets the finish there in round one. Two things I want to highlight about Zamzagul's game. Does a good job working in dirty boxing. In the clinch, against the fence, or on the ground, when things are in tight, she throws elbows, throws a lot of combinations, and stays very busy. Based upon the film of who she's fighting now, which is low-level competition, her grappling looks pretty good, and her ground transitions are very smooth. My concern for Zamzagul, she had a three-year layoff between her last two fights. From 2018 to 2021, she fought no one. Not sure why, but that's a long layoff, and her head movement is very limited. She's in a Muay Thai stance, standing very high. Her guards are pretty high. Whenever she swings, she's wide open. Her head's right there in center. Against a fighter like Pacheco, who throws with a lot of heat, that might be a recipe for disaster for Samzagul. And last but not least, Samzagul has faced much lower competition than Pacheco. Let's peel back the numbers. The combined record of her opponents, her total career, 7-1, is 19-18. At first glance, you're like, okay, she's fought 500-level opponents. If you remove the Jojua fight, peel back the numbers a little bit more, then it falls to 11-13 and 13 overall is the record of her opponents. Three of the seven wins that she had were against opponents who had zero wins and less than three fights. Bottom line, she's been beating a few cans. Yes, she stepped up and faced a little bit better competition, like the Jojo win. You can't even compare that to the likes of Jessica Andrade and the different people that Pacheco has fought. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Faisal Lenova versus Gorchinskaya in 2018, Faisal Lenova versus Jojua in 2016, Pacheco versus Harrison from a few years ago, and Pacheco versus Kaliznik last year. To access those fights, if you look down below here on YouTube, you'll see four links available in the video description below. My final thoughts on these two fighters. Experience 
wise and fighter IQ, big advantage for Pacheco. As for cardio, I have no reason to doubt Pacheco. She's been five rounds with Kayla Harrison. As for Zamzagul, it's more of an unknown. Based upon the film we've watched against very low-level talent, she looked okay in round three, but most likely Pacheco, who's younger by three years, will have the edge in cardio, especially as the fight goes later. When it pertains to finishing ability, Pacheco has a clear edge. Boxing-wise, Pacheco has a clear edge because she strikes with more power, has better technique, throws more volume. As for the grappling comparison, I believe Pacheco, who has more experience in the cage, three submissions in her last seven wins, has an edge here over Zamzagul, who likes to use that hip toss, has some judo throws but i don't believe has the experience or the technique on the ground to compete with pacheco last but not least who has more heart who has more passion i think larissa pacheco's time is coming i can see her challenging again for the title this year yes kayla harrison will probably win it again but pacheco is a damn good fighter she's back from her injury she's fully healed up she shows a lot of durability and at 27 years old you have to remind yourself she's a younger fighter it would be irresponsible to give an accurate assessment of her heart just haven't seen enough from her i'm going to give a slight edge there for larissa pacheco again has fought against some really good fighters ufc level talent has some quality wins well, that's the breakdown, guys. We like Pacheco. We like her by TKO sometime in round two. At minus 450-ish on the money line, not going to be a play you want to do straight up. Maybe something to put in the parlay basket. Our money line is an estimate. We don't have the money lines yet available. So when you see this on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever the money line comes out, forgive us. We're estimating the money line will come out at minus 450 for Pacheco and about plus 375 to plus 400 for Zamzagul. By Friday, those numbers probably swell up to like minus 700-ish for Pacheco. And then you'll see plus 500 on the other side for Zamzagul. Larissa Pacheco should really run through her with no problem and get a round one or round two tko knockout thanks for joining us guys if you haven't done so already please like and subscribe share our content that's how you can support us here at may fight club we're on to the next video here we go Next up, we have a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between the Russian fighter Nikolai Alexekin versus Sadabu C from Sweden, who goes by the Swedish Denzel Washington. C is 9-6-2 overall, 1-2-2 two two in his last five fights. A bit of a rough streak. He's out of Stockholm, Sweden, specifically 35 years old, 6-3 and high with an 80-inch reach. He's currently training at a pancreas gym, but also did some training at a Wasa kickboxing. As for Nikolai, 26-6 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights, 31 years old, 5-9 and high with a 74-inch reach. He trains out of Alexander Nevsky Gym, which is a notable gym in Russia. It's run by Coach Nevsky. According to the votes on Tapology, Alexin is the heavy favorite, getting 75% of the votes and obviously 25% on the other side for C. I agree with the public. I do like Nikolai to win the fight. I like him to win by decision. These guys fought last year. It was an eye poke that stopped the fight. We'll talk about that fight during this breakdown. Some basic information on these two fighters. Sadabu C is a nine-year pro. He uses a Muay Thai fighting style. Kicking is his strong suit and wrestling is one of his deficiencies. Nikolai is an 11-year pro. He uses a boxing style. His stand-up defense is excellent. You'll see it on film if you watch some of his prior fights. Good head movement, always has his guard up. Even after he punches, gets his hand right back up. His biggest weakness is actually his ground attack. You think he's a Russian fighter, he probably has good wrestling. Not so much. He doesn't do very well on the ground. His usual path to victory is on the feet, working behind his lead jab. Looking at the fighter profiles, let's talk about Sadabu C first. He grew up in a big family with six siblings. He played soccer as a kid competitively. That was his first love in sports. He began mixed martial arts training at the age of 16 years old. He initially studied kickboxing and taekwondo. He competed in the Muay Thai European Championships at 19 years old. He looked up to Mike Tyson growing up along with Michael Jordan. At the age of 12, 13 years old, he started to have very serious vision problems. He ended up having multiple surgeries, tried different types of treatments, but to this day has said that his vision is not better and he still has problems seeing. He can't concentrate on things for long periods of time. As an example, after fights, his eyes usually hurt him because he's had to focus so much on his opponent for a long period of time. It gave him issues in school, had a hard time focusing in the classroom, and still to this day, again, has vision issues. Some of his symptoms are he has a lack of depth perception. 
He can't see things from afar very good. And sometimes his eyes get very dry. All seems to be like things that would be not good to have in the cage as a fighter. Not to mention if he gets hit in the eye too hard, could that pose an immediate other issue that would cause him to possibly lose a fight? He's been in the PFL for four years. He has the PFL record for the fastest finish in PFL welterweight history with a 17 second body kick knockout over David Michaud in 2019. Some of his most notable opponents, he fought Magomed Magomed Karimov, 2021, lost by decision. That was a semifinal matchup, Latcher's playoffs. He got taken down repeatedly in that fight and that ultimately cost him. If you've ever watched Magomed Karimov fight, typical Dagestani style wrestler, likes to wrestle a lot, clinch control, and in that fight, C just had no solution for that. It went to decision, but it was a very one-sided fight. And of course, he fought Nikolai Alexekin last year, a fight that ended with a no contest due to an eye poke. He came into that fight as a plus 215 underdog. It was ruled a no contest because of an accidental eye poke by C. It was totally accidental. Nikolai was coming in to try to strike and C just had one hand up. It caught him by mistake. Didn't look too bad initially. Ended up being pretty bad and the fight had to be stopped. In that fight, you see a few obvious things. Nikolai is the shorter fighter, more compact, has to really work to close range, has an active jab, worked behind it, landed it a ton in that first round. Then you also see on the other side that C has much more length, much longer of a fighter, kicks at range, was landing a lot of lower leg kicks. I think landed something like 17 to 20 leg kicks in the first round. He was leading the overall striking match because of lower leg kicks, which depends on how judges see that. But his range was working for him. On top, wasn't doing as much boxing, landed a few punches, but nothing too hard. Neither fighter cracked each other. I thought in the case of Nikolai, he did enough forward pressure coming in and out of range, doing a good job of avoiding hard strikes and landing the jab. But that first round clearly could have gone either way. Some other things of note in that fight. C does like to switch stances. Nikolai lands a very cool wheel kick in that first round. It doesn't hurt C. It hits him on the side of the head, but he just sort of shakes it off. So what we took from that fight was that Nikolai can close range on C. He can get in range to work behind his jab. He comes in and out of range very well, avoided getting hit with anything too hard. On the flip side, we saw C use his height and his reach to his advantage and land a lot of lower leg kicks. The first round of this fight is going to be very similar. It'll come down to who has more notable volume. Does one person land a bigger shot? In that first fight, you can argue that either fighter won that first round. I thought the spinning wheel kick at the end of the first round was just enough to get the people ooing and eyeing and get the judges to possibly give the first round to Nikolai. And based upon the actual numbers, I believe C landed more strikes in that first round. Some things I like about C, he's got excellent length, as we've talked about, good long legs, uses his lower leg kicks. His kicking game is by far his most lethal weapon. He can go to the head, to the body. He throws a variety of kicks. And remember, his background is in Muay Thai and kickboxing. He also has very good footwork, especially for a big guy. He's at six foot three, almost five inches taller than his opponent, Nikolai, but works really well on his feet, has fast feet, is able to circle away from his opponent, get into range, and also get out of range. Now, usually he's a longer fighter. In this matchup, he'll have much more reach over his opponent, Nikolai. And if you watch round one of that fight between these two fighters, both guys work well at range. They come in out of range. And he does an excellent job of never staying in the pocket too long. He'll get into the pocket, get in range, land a few strikes, and then get out of there. My concerns for C, not much of a finisher lately. Four of his last five fights, including the no contest, have all got a decision. I noticed he got tagged with a few simple jabs by Nikolai in the first fight. They weren't very fast, but his guard was not close. He sort of stared them down. Not sure if it's a vision thing, but he got hit with a few jabs too many, I believe, in the first round of that fight. He needs to shore up his stand-up boxing, use more side-to-side -side head movement. He's also on a bit of a rough streak. Has only one win in the last three years. Looking at the profile for Nikolai Alexin, he lost his MMA pro debut in 2011 via a 31 second armbar. Following that, he ripped off nine wins in a row. Like they say, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Over the course of his 11 year pro career, he's fought Burger competition, has fought in Fight Nights Global, ACB, won championships, and the PFL. Has also been a very consistent fighter, had a nine fight winning streak and a seven fight winning streak. Has only lost back to back fights one time in his career. Some of his most notable opponents, of course, he fought C last year. This is a rematch. He also fought Ray Cooper last year, lost by decision. He came in as a minus 145 favorite, more or less a pick him. Round one was very close in that fight. It could have gone either way. Some people 
had it going for Nikolai. Some people had it going for Cooper. The determining round was round three. He comes out in that round and gets completely out-wrestled by Ray Cooper, former state champion, very well known as a good wrestler. Again, it's a weak part of Nikolai's game. You expect him as a Russian fighter to have a good wrestling game. Unfortunately, that's one of the weaker parts of his craft. A few more fighters you might recognize on his topology. Jesse Ronson, 2019 round one KO win. Ronson's currently in the UFC. He just fought a few weekends ago. Dominique Steele, 2018, round one KO win as well. Steele had a stint in the UFC. Mike Graves, 2017, round three, another TKO win. Graves had a stint in the UFC as well, and Mike Graves is 10-1-2 overall. Ben Askren, there's a name you might recognize. 2016, decision lost to him in one championships. At the time, many, many years ago, Ben was 16-0 at that time. Boyan Velekovic, 2014, decision loss in Serbian regional promotion up in Russia. It wasn't the worst loss. Boyan had a stint in the UFC and the PFL. And one more bout against Saeed Izak Kaimeyev. 2016 decision lost to him in Fight Nights Global. That's a lot of tough guys in his background. He clearly has the better strength of schedule when you compare these two fighters. Some things I like about Nikolai. He's got excellent boxing defense. Great head movement. Keeps his guard up at all times. In their first fight, C was not able to land very many punches. He landed lower leg kicks, but on the feet, had a hard time landing against Nikolai. Nikolai does a great job moving in and out of range. He's clearly the shorter fighter here. He has to move into range to land, but he does a good job of coming in and out. Good head movement. Lands a few strikes and gets out. Doesn't throw three, four, five punch combinations, but comes in for a one, two and gets out of range. He works behind a very solid jab. He's an active fighter. He fought twice last year. Didn't fight at all in 2020. Again, coming off of the COVID year, a little tougher for foreign fighters. Also fought twice in 2019. Some of my concerns for Nikolai. He hasn't won a fight in three years. Yeah, I'll say that again. It's been three years since he won a fight. So he really needs to get in the W column. His wrestling defense needs improvement. Not that C's going to be looking to take him down. He doesn't seem to have very good finishing power, at least of lately. Three of his last four fights have gone a decision, including the no contest against Sadabu C in their first match. The fights we watch every now in this film, we watch Oleskin vs. Cooper, 2021, C vs. Magomed Karimov, 2021, and Sadabu C vs. Nikolai in their initial matchup last year. To watch those fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In our description, you're going to see three links for those three fights. My final thoughts on these two fighters. The experience and fighter IQ is on the side of Nikolai Alexin. Clearly has fought a lot more fights. When you look at the topology, has fought much better competition. Both of them seem to have pretty good cardio. I've seen C go the distance against opponents, look pretty good. And same with Nikolai. I don't think either fighter here has an advantage in the cardio department. Neither one of them has been a big finisher recently. I expect this fight to go the distance. Nikolai has a slight boxing advantage. Now, when it comes to kickboxing, C has the advantage. So over the course of the fight, you're going to see C land a lot more leg kicks, whereas Nikolai should be landing more combinations with his hands. This fight can come down to how the judges interpret the fight. Do they count the lower leg kicks from C as much as the punches from Nikolai? Neither fighter is much of a grappler. I expect the entire fight to be on the feet. While doing film study, nothing popped out that was an example of how they have very good heart or lack thereof. Both of them know the situation. It's the PFL regular season. They need a win to move forward, preferably a finish of some kind. Unfortunately, though, I don't think we're going to see much violence in this fight. I think we're going to see two very very good tactical fighters staying in and out of range, not getting hurt. Maybe you see a little bit of a flurry at some point in round three. At some point, I believe the fight gets a little dull. It won't be a big crowd, but if there's a crowd there, they might be throwing out some boo birds. Our estimated money line for this fight is going to be minus 300 for Nikolai and plus 210 for C. At the same time, I'm not going to be surprised if people watching the first fight are looking at it and saying, well, C landed more strikes. Maybe he's got a better opportunity. And so maybe the money line could be closer. I hope it's closer. I do think Nikolai wins the fight by decision. If that prop's available, look at the prop for the fight just going to decision. At that point, you're covering either way. The second prop would be either fighter you like the most by decision, you'll definitely get some plus money in that spot. That's the breakdown, guys. Again, we're on the side of Nikolai Alexton to win the fight by decision over C. Should be a good fight. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Thanks for joining us. We hope you like the breakdown. Give us some feedback. We welcome all comments, positive and negative. Let's move on to the next video. Here we go.
Up next, we have a lightweight battle between Janae Fabian from New Zealand and Julia Budd from Canada. This will mark the third of four women fights on the card. Janae Fabian, who goes by Fabioso, is 4-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. She hails out of Auckland, New Zealand, 32 years old. She's 6 foot in height with a 74-inch reach. She trains out of city kickboxing. As for Julia Budd, who goes by The Jewel, she's 16-3 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights. She hails out of Port Moody, British Columbia in Canada, 38 years old in 10 months, so about to be 39. 5'8 in height with a 70-inch reach. She trains out of Gibson MMA. Janae Fabian will have a 4-inch reach advantage and about a 4-inch height advantage. It shouldn't be much of a factor for Julia Budd, though. Some basic information about these two fighters. Janae Fabian is a 6-year pro. She uses a Muay Thai fighting style. Dirty boxing is one of her strong suits, and her grappling is her weakness. As for Julia Budd, her strong suit is wrestling. She's a balanced fighter, 12-year pro, and sometimes it gets elite opponents. Her striking defense tends to be her Achilles heel. Now, I see elite level like Cyborg and fighters of that magnitude. I don't believe it's going to be a problem here against Janae Fabian. Looking at the fighter profile for Fabian, she was born and raised in New Zealand. Her mother's German and Samoan, and her father's of Moriori descent. She was a track athlete in her younger years. She's a former Muay Thai world champion. Her record in kickboxing is 7-2 overall. Not sure what level of promotion that was, but her overall record in kickboxing is only 7-2 overall. I'm not sure what kind of world championship belt that must have been. Anyway, let's move on. She fights in a southpaw stance. She was in a serious car accident in 2011. It left her bedridden for months, and she was unable to leave her house. She fell into a bit of a depression. One of her friends approached her about the idea of traveling to Thailand for a Muay Thai training camp, just to do something different, get out the house, part of her recovery. She ends up going there and falling in love with the program in Thailand and moves to Thailand for a period of time. She's the cousin of city kickboxing coach Eugene Barman. Now, according to Wikipedia, she's back in New Zealand training at City Kickboxing. Her most notable opponent, she fought Kayla Harrison last year, 2021, round one TKO loss. She was a plus 1,100 favorite in that fight. It was complete one-way traffic, Kayla Harrison doing whatever she wanted to do, and then beating her up on the ground via ground and pound for a TKO finish. Another prior fight of hers, Julija Pajic, 2021, round two TKO win via ground and pound. She was a minus 275 favorite in that fight. She looked good, very aggressive, much more confident and different looking than she did against the Kayla Harrison fight. Against Kayla Harrison, she looked intimidated versus Pajic. She did her thing. She moved forward, initiated the clinch, took the fight to the ground, and eventually gets a ground and pound win. Almost the same way that Kayla Harrison did to her. And one more fight to talk about. Bobby Joe Dazelle, 2019 decision loss. Dazelle is 5-2 overall. She hasn't fought since 2019. Her last two fights were back-to-back losses in the PFL. In that fight, Fabian looked underwhelming. She wasn't pushing enough of the pace. Bobby Joe led the clinches against the fence, but out in the open, Fabian didn't let her go over hands. She looked a little bit gun-shy and overall just didn't perform very well. It went to decision and she lost, and it was the right decision, but looking back on that fight, she could have done more. She could have had more output. She could have let her hands go a little bit more. In round three of that fight, she gets very busted up. That beautiful face of hers was bleeding all over the place. Bobby Joe had busted up her nose, I believe. The bottom line is she ends up coming short against a fighter who's average at best, who has a 5-2 and two overall record. Some things I do like about Janae Fabian, she works well at distance. When she's got the fight at distance, which is her Muay Thai base, her karate base, she's effective. Leg kicks, strikes, she needs to work at distance. When an opponent crowds her, it basically removes all of her effective striking. She has solid durability. She's only been finished one time in her career, and that was by Kayla Harrison. I'll give her a pass on that one. In the fight against Bobby Joe Dalziel, she got cracked a few times. Again, she got cut up in the third round, but showed a pretty good chin. My concerns for Fabian, she's fought very, very low-level competition. I mean, very low. If you remove Kayla Harrison from her topology, the remaining fighters on that list, they're 12 and 15 overall. Not very good opponents. She lacks an effective wrestling game, and her grappling game is also very deficient. If she fights a fighter like Julia Budd, for example, who's got a good grappling game, who's got good sweeps and takedowns, she could be in for a long night. This could be three rounds of her on her back, just getting grinded out by Julia Budd, who works very well in the clinch and has a very good effective top game. 
As for Julia Budd, the Canadian fighter, she was born and raised in Canada. She trained Muay Thai for many years before moving over to mixed martial arts. She finished her Muay Thai career with a 10-2 record. She transitioned to mixed martial arts in 2008. She made her pro debut in 2010 with Strike Force. She's a Bellator veteran. She went 9-1 in Bellator with her only loss coming against Chris Cyborg. She went 4-0 in Invicta. She trained at Gibson Kickboxing and Pancreation Academy. Her most notable opponents, her last fight, Caitlin Young, 2021 decision win in the PFL. Young, mind you, is 12-12-1 overall. Exactly a 500-level fighter. Young in that first round looked pretty good. It was a little concerning for the Julia Budd fans. In round one, it was close. Julia Budd had her hands full in the feet right before the end of round one, about 49 seconds to go. She takes down Young, keeps top control for the rest of the round, in essence, steals that first round. In round two and three, it's rinse and repeat. She takes down Young both second and third round, tons of top control. For Young, she had no answers for the wrestling. This fight against Fabian will be very similar, I believe. If Julia Budd could piece her up on the feet, she'll do it. But the minute she feels uncomfortable on the feet and wants to get it to the ground, she'll be able to do that. And for Janae Fabian, it's going to be very tough for her to get out from the very strong, shorter, more compact, and thicker Julia Budd. Some other prior opponents for Julia Budd, some names you might recognize. Ronda Rousey, 2011, round one armbar loss while they were fighting in strike force. Obviously, Ronda Rousey went on to become a future UFC champion. Jermaine Randomy, 2011, decision win in strike force. Amanda Nunes, 2011, round one TKO loss in 14 seconds of round one. Ouch. Amanda Nunes, of course, would go on to become a future UFC champion as well. Chris Cyborg, 2020, round four TKO loss. Cyborg is, of course, the current Bellator champion and former UFC fighter. In that fight, Cyborg manhandles her, drags her to the ground, takes top control. I'll give it to Julia Butt. She lasts for four rounds, but it was one-way traffic with Cyborg leading the show. And last but not least, she fought Arlene Blenkow, who just fought about two weeks ago in Bellator. She beat Blenkow twice, once by split decision and once by decision 2016 and 2017, respectively. The strong points in Julia Budd's game, very good grappling, very good wrestling, double leg takedowns, single leg takedowns, sweeps. She has a much stronger strength of schedule than Janae Fabian. She works very well in the clinch. She likes to initiate dirty boxing. Janae Fabian does not work well in crowded spaces. She needs space. Julia Budd will close that gap. Now on paper, you look at Janae Fabian having a four inch height advantage, a four inch reach advantage. It won't matter. When Julia Budd, who I believe is a stronger fighter in the clinch, when she closes that gap, gets on top of Janae Fabian, that length will not be able to help her. My concerns for Julia Budd, she's about to be 39 years old, seven years the senior of her opponent. It's now or never. The goal, of course, is to win the $1 million prize. The problem is, of course, she's got Kayla Harrison in the same division. Julia Budd is a warrior. She's a fighter. I don't see her overtaking Kayla Harrison, but I do see her working her way into the playoffs, if not even making it to the finals. She also has limited finishing ability, especially recently. No finishes in the last four fights. She hasn't finished an opponent in almost three years. And last but not least, she keeps her head a little too still for my liking. Against elite opponents like Chris Cyborg or Kayla Harrison, more of a problem. Lower level opponents don't take advantage of it as much. Against Caitlin Young, you saw it. Her head was not moving as much, a little bit still. She wasn't doing well on the feet, so she took it to the ground. A good fighter IQ move. The problem is on the feet, her head movement is not great. It's not very often you see her move side to side. It's usually just back and forth, and she puts up her guard. So her head movement could be better. At 38, 39, I don't expect big improvements. She fights the way she fights. The fights we watched every now in this film, we watched Bud versus Cyborg, Bud versus Young. Fabian vs. Pajic, Fabian vs. Harrison, and Fabian vs. Dalziel. To watch those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube in the description. You're going to see those five links available. My final thoughts on these two fighters. The experience advantage and fighter IQ advantage are on the side of Julia Budd for many of the reasons we talked about. Cardio, Janae Fabian has shown very good cardio, and so has Julia Budd. The fight goes to round three. You're going to see both fighters fighting tooth and nail. No big cardio dump. Both of them are in very good shape. Neither one of them are very good finishers at this point in their career. I think that speaks more to who they're fighting against. Some of the opponents are very good. So in the case of Julia Budd, she has has some finishes, just nothing recently, and the same goes for Janae Fabian. In the boxing department, they both have deficiencies. For Janae Fabian, that is more of her wheelhouse. She needs to be at striking reins for kicks and for punching. 
but I don't think she has the power of Julia Budd. Whereas Julia Budd doesn't have the best stand-up defense, I think she equals things out from the boxing element from the standpoint that she's got good boxing skills, just enough to keep up with Janae Fabian, and she hits a little bit harder. Julia Budd should have a significant advantage in the grappling department. Janae Fabian has not shown, at least not yet on film, that she can grapple very well. And against an opponent like this, Julia Budd, who has a very good grappling base, I believe that weakness in Fabian's game is exposed in this matchup. And lastly, who has more heart? Watching Janae Fabian get cut up by Dalziel in their final round of their fight when she was bleeding very badly and still kept fighting, check mark there. She's got some heart. In the case of Julia Budd, we've talked about some of the fighters she went against. Some of the best have ever done it. So I think the heart meter here for both ladies checks out. I expect both of them to go the full distance, give us a good fight. It is three rounds. I think Janae Fabian has enough just to hold on. So the two props I do like for this fight are the fight going the distance or the over and Julia Budd by decision. I doubt Janae Fabian even wins a round. Looking at our estimated money line, which is again, the money line we've come up with here, not the actual money line, which has not been released yet. We think Julia Budd opens up around minus 400 with Janae Fabian at plus 325. Julia Budd is a much better fighter. It should be obvious obvious that even the casual betters, she's fought much better competition, has a 16-3 record compared to 4-2 for Janae Fabian. She'll be a big parlay piece this week coming up. I like her as a parlay piece, don't like her straight up, and minus 400 is going to be a little bit chalky for my liking. By the time it closes, probably moves to like minus 550, minus 600. I fully expect Julia Budd to get the job done. That's the breakdown, guys. I like Julia Budd, the veterans get the win here by decision. Thanks for stopping by. If you haven't done so already, you know what to do. Please like and subscribe, share our content, and we'll see you guys soon. Up next, we have a welterweight bout. This should be the last fight in the prelim card between Magomed Magomed Karimov versus Jajoa Zafarino. I'm not stuttering there. It's Magomed Magomed Karimov. It'd be like if your name was Dan Johnson, and then they translated it to like a Russian name, and it was Dan Dan Johnson. Like Magomed Magomed Karimov. Anyway, Magomed Karimov is 29-6 overall. Four won his last five fights. He hails from Mashkala, Russia. So he's from Dagestan. 32 years old. 32 years old, 6'1 in high with a 73-inch reach. As for Joa Severino, the Brazilian samurai, he's 26-9 overall. 5-0 in his last five fights. He hails from Middletown, New York. 5'9 in high with a 69-inch reach. He's out of Renzo Gracie Academy. 91% of the votes on Tapology are coming in from Magomed Karimov. Only 9% for Zeferino. I do like Magomed Karimov to win the fight, but I think there's a chance here for Zeferino to make it close. I think Magomed Karimov, I think we saw some chinks in the armor in his last fight against Ray Cooper III when he lost the fight via TKO. He got tired in that fight. Got a little lazy with a stand-up defense, ends up getting knocked out with some very basic punches. He probably wins this fight, but there's a but there. I won't have as much confidence in this as some of the other fights in this card. Some basic details of these two fighters. Magomed Karimov is a 14-year pro. He's a wrestler by trait. He has amazing submission skills. His striking defense is his weakness. We'll talk more about it as we break down this film. As for Zeferino, he's a boxer by trait, 17-year pro. Has very high volume, but not much of a finisher. As for the fighter profile on Magomed Magomed Karimov, he's born in Dagestan, Russia. He graduated college with a degree in athletics. He earned the title of Master of sport in Russia. He's won a variety of tournaments and belts in different forms of mixed martial arts, Thai boxing, hand-to-hand -hand combat, kudo, and he's a three-time pancreation champion. He won the PFL Grand Prix in 2018. He went 2-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2008. He's a family man, married with two children. Magomed's most notable opponent. He fought Ray Cooper III last year, 2021, round three TKO loss in the semifinals of PFL. He was winning that fight in that round. He had Ray Cooper hurt. Got a little sloppy, exposed his chin, got a little tired as well. He got hit with some basic shots and just went down and that was it. I think he'll look at that film and be very regretful of how he fought that round. He had Ray Cooper hurt. The most notable opponents from Magomed Karimov, Ray Cooper III last year, round three TKO loss to the PFL playoffs. He came into that fight as a minus 215 favorite. Round one was very close. 
He got out wrestled in round two a little bit, which is a little surprising. He's a very good wrestler, but Ray Cooper's a good wrestler himself. In round three, he had Cooper tired. He had him hurt. He started laying some heavy strikes on him. Unfortunately, he gets a little bit sloppy, exposes his chin. Ray Cooper gets him hurt, knocks him down, and that's all she wrote. I'm sure he watches that film and thinks to himself, I probably should have been a little more tactful in round three when I had Cooper hurt. The first time that Ray Cooper and him fought, 2018, he won by round two submission. He looked a lot better that first fight. The second fight was a little bit different. Ray Cooper looked more prepared. He was pushing the pace at times. If anything, my biggest concern with Magomed Karamov was his conditioning at the end of that fight. He looked very tired, was not moving his head, and that's why he got hit with a few punches and got knocked down. Some other opponents in his background, he fought Sadabusi, 2021 decision win. He was a minus 1,000 favorite in that fight. He also beat Chris Curtis twice, who's currently 2-0 in the UFC. He beat John Howard, round one submission win, who's a former UFC fighter. He fought and defeated Bojan Velikovic twice, who's a former UFC fighter. And last but not least, Curtis Melender, 2021 round one Ezekiel Choke win, who's another former UFC fighter. A very solid finish rate. He's, finished, he's got a solid finish rate. He's finished four of his last seven wins. He's got a pretty good finish rate. He's finished four of his last seven wins. My concerns for Magomed Karimov, the last fight against Cooper. He looked a bit tiredly in that fight and loses the fight more so because of his fighter IQ and poor conditioning. His boxing offense is a bit rough. It's that typical Dagestani boxing offense where they're just striking to set up a takedown. As example, that fight against Cooper. His head's wide open. He's not being disciplined about his guard, not displaying good head movement. Against any good fighter who can force the fight into the feet, he can have some problems. Again, his boxing's not great. He gets tired. His hands are down low. A lot of his weaknesses in his game were exposed in that last fight against Cooper. It wasn't like it was just that round. The prior rounds before that, he was also not doing so well. Cooper was back backing him up and exposing his boxing defense. As for Zeferino, he was born and raised in northern Brazil, fourth degree black belt in BJJ. He went pro 2005, a long time ago, 17 year pro career. He fought in World Series of Fighting, PFL, and had two stints in the UFC. He's currently 5-1 in the PFL. Some of his most notable opponents, he fought Gleason Tibau, 2021 decision win. He came to that fight as a slight favorite. Tibau is a very well-known veteran, a former UFC fighter himself. That was a quality win. He also fought Bojan Velikovic, 2019 decision win. Velikovic had a short stint in the UFC. He came to that fight as a slight favorite. He lost to John Fitch, 2016 another former UFC fighter. He came into that fight as a slight dog. And then one more fight, Brian Foster, 2015 TKO loss. Foster's also a former UFC fighter. Looking at the topology on Zeferino, he's fought some pretty good guys, people with some UFC experience. Some things I like about Zeferino, he's on a nice winning streak. He hasn't lost a fight in five years. Excellent submission skills. He's had two submission wins in his last four fights. He's very durable. Only been finished one time in 35 MMA fights. And he has decent finishing ability. He's had four finishes in his last six wins. Now my concerns with Zeferino, he comes up short against elite-level competition, not the average guys. The average guys, he does a pretty good job. But when he's facing UFC-level guys, he tends to come up a little bit short. He also tends to load up on his right hand. He's an orthodox stance fighter. His right hand's his power hand. At times, he'll overload it, miss, be off balance. Next thing you know, he's open for counters, being taken down. Against Magomed Karimov, I can see a takedown happening because he overloads in a punch, gets off balance, maybe gives up his back. Next thing you know, he's on the ground in the wheelhouse of Magomed Karimov. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Zeferino versus Tibau, 2021. Zeferino versus Velikovic, 2019. Magomed Karimov versus Cooper, the second fight. And Magomed Karimov versus Cooper, the first fight. And lastly, Magomed Karimov versus C, 2021. To watch those fights, if you look down below here on YouTube, in our description, you're going to see those five links available as part of our free video library. My final thoughts on these two fighters. Excellent experience against top-level fighters, people in the UFC. They're both coming out of very good gyms. ATT for Magomed and Renzo Gracie for Zeferino. Magomed has a slight edge in the finishing department because of his BJJ skills. Zeferino has a striking edge. He's a better boxer, a little cleaner, better combinations. Magomed boxes or throws strikes just to set up takedowns. The typical Dagestani fighter. Magomed will have the grappling edge. Zeferino has good BJJ skills, but not at the level of Magomed Karimov. I don't believe either fighter has an edge in the heart department or passion. You got a Dagestani wrestler against a Brazilian fighter. They're both coming to bang. No one's going to give up very easily. Could the fight end because 
of a tap or a submission, that's possible. Both of them have very good submission skills. But I imagine the fight actually goes a distance, all three rounds. We don't have the lines available for the props yet or the money line. The two props I like the most are like Magomed and Karimov by submission and the fight going the distance. The prop I like the most for this fight is the fight going to decision. There's an outside chance of a submission by either fighter, but ultimately I think it goes three tough rounds and the fight goes a distance. When that prop comes out, you might want to give it some consideration. The money line is not yet available, but our estimated money line for this fight would be minus 350 for Magomed Karimov and plus 275 for Zephyrino. By the time the fight closes, you're going to be looking at Magomed Karimov around minus 500 and Zephyrino around plus 400. If Zephyrino outstrikes him on the feet, Goes to the scorecards, gets a win, not going to be surprised. At minus 300 range, minus 350, I'm not going to bet Magomed Karimov straight up. I'll have him to a few parlays. Feel like Magomed Karimov has a lot to prove. He got exposed against Ray Cooper. And Zephyrino is a very tough fighter. At 36, he's still very much in his prime. Treats at Renzo Gracie. Good submission skills. Good submission defense. In summary, this fight's going to be pretty close. So be very careful with this one. Don't over parlay it. I would steer clear from betting on Magomed straight up if the money line's around minus 300 or higher. Not a lot of value there, and this fight's probably going to be very close. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and we're on to the next video. The first fight in the main card should be a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between the Canadian fighter Rory the Red King McDonald versus Brett Cooper who goes by Fidocian. Mr. Cooper is 28 and 15 overall, 3 and 2 in his last 5 fights. He hails from Los Angeles, California, 34 years old in 10 months, so about to be 35. 6 foot in high with a 72 inch reach. He trains out of Team Body Shop MMA. As for the Red King, he's 22, 8 and 1 overall, 2 and 3 in his last 5 fights. He's currently out of Deerfield Beach, Florida, 32 years old, 6 foot in high with a 79 inch reach. He trains out of Sanford MMA, also does some training out of TriStar Gym, which I believe is up in Canada. According to the public votes coming in on Tapology, McDonald is the big favorite. Not surprised. 95% of the votes are coming in for McDonald, only 5% for Cooper. Cooper's a bit of a journeyman. Decent overall fighter, has fought some okay level opponents, had a run in the Bellator for a little bit. But Rory McDonald has much more experience, has fought much higher caliber opponents, should have the advantage here in almost every part of the fight, and should get the win. But it may be by decision. Brett Cooper's been pretty durable over the course of his career, and Rory McDonald at times has a way of taking his foot off the gas pedal. We're going to talk about that specifically in his fight against Gleason Tibau. We'll talk about about that in more detail. The opening money line has McDonald at minus 400 and Brett Cooper at plus 300. I'm not going to be taking anything straight up on Rory McDonald that's a little too chalky for my liking, but I'll put him into some parlays with some confidence. Rory McDonald definitely has some holes in his game. They were exposed against Gleason Tibau, but in this matchup here, he should have the advantage almost every which way the fight goes. Looking at the fighter profile for Rory McDonald first, he was born and raised in Canada. He's of Scottish, Irish, and Norwegian descent. He's a black belt in BJJ. He went pro 2005, 17-year pro career. His first fight, he was 16 years old, and he won that fight via round one submission. He's a former UFC top contender. He went 9-4 and four in the UFC, earned fight of the night three times in the UFC, and he also earned performance of the night in the UFC. Former Bellator welterweight champion, former KOTC lightweight champion. He's also a family man. Him and his wife have two kids. His most notable opponents, some names you're going to recognize. Nate Diaz, 2011 decision win. BJ Penn, 2012 decision win. Tyron Woodley, 2014 decision win. Gagar Musasi, the current Bellator champion, he lost to him in 2018 via round two TKO. He lost to Steven Thompson in 2016 by decision. He fought Ray Cooper the third last year, came in as a slight favorite, minus 150 in the money line. McDonald got taken down in that fight all three rounds, could not get back up. It was a landslide victory for Ray Cooper. And what you take from that fight is that Rory McDonald's a pretty good balanced fighter, but against a very good wrestler, he has a hard time, can't get back up, and can't stop himself from getting taken down. And then the fight against Gleason Tibau last year, 2021, split decision, loss. A lot of people were ranting and raving that it was a robbery. And yeah, at first glance, it looked like Roy McDonald may have won the fight. But go back and look at it a few more times. Round one, I think Gleason Tibau wins round one. He gets a takedown. He has some top control. The round's very close. I believe Roy McDonald wins round two. 
Round three, here's my criticism of McDonald. He doesn't do enough. He's doing too much circling. He's not engaging enough. He was fighting as if he felt like, oh, I have round one and round two. I won the fight on paper. I don't wanna get too hurt. I don't wanna engage. When you look at that fight two, three more times, look back, who has the more impactful punches? I believe it was Tabao. I believe he had a few combinations, landed a few hard punches. You can see after the fight, Rory McDonald had some red on his face, wasn't bleeding, but Gleason Tabao didn't have anything red on his face, wasn't swollen, was a landslide victory for either fighter? No, but it's an example of how in a fight, that was close, an important fight just last year, he didn't push the pace. He didn't do enough, especially in round three, a round where he had another eye poke on Tabao. He had an eye poke in round one as well. No points were taken away, but had the eye poke, had some time to recover, get his rest, made sure he was full of energy, ready to go, and did not put the pace and pressure on Gleason Tibau. And if anything, for whatever it's worth, Gleason Tibau was the one who commanded the center of the cage. So was that really a robbery? He came into that fight as a minus 950 favorite and lost against Gleason Tibau, a very old man at the end of his career. Wasn't a good look, wasn't fully a robbery in my opinion. I think we saw some issues there with Roy McDonald's game. Can't defend wrestling. Round one got taken down. Now round two, round three defends the takedowns because Gleason Tibau's getting tired and he's very old. But that first round he lost because of the wrestling and he lost the rest of the fight because he didn't push the pace and pressure against a guy who he should have just picked apart in the feet, just didn't get it done. A few things I like about Roy McDonald for this matchup. He's fought the much better high-level competition if you compare his record to Brett Cooper. He's got championship-level experience, and he's held a championship belt in multiple promotions. The best way to define Roy McDonald's fighting style, he's a bit of a Swiss army knife. He's not amazing at any one thing, but has the tools to win the fight on the ground, has the tools to win the fight in the feet. Now, against an elite-level grappler, probably not good for him to get on the ground. Against an elite-level striker, same thing, probably wants to go to the ground. He can do it all, and over the course of his career, he's displayed that. He's got good submission skills. In this matchup here against Brett Cooper, Brett Cooper has not shown to be very good at grappling. That could be a path to victory for McDonald to make it easy for himself, get a few takedowns, get a few clinches, work against the cage, drag this guy to the ground. My concern is for Rory McDonald. He's been fighting for a long time, 17 years, started when he was 16 years old. My question is how much tread is left in those tires? After a certain point, you just take so many hits, you take so many punches. It's been a long career. I felt like he looked every bit of that long career in his last fight against Gleason Tabao. And I feel like some of that wear and tear showed itself when he lost against Ray Cooper III, got out wrestled for three full rounds, didn't look anything like the former Bellator champion that he used to be, could not stop takedowns, and then the fight against Gleason Tabao. Maybe he should have won that decision. But against an older fighter like Tabao, he didn't do much. He didn't seize the day. He didn't clearly win the fight. He didn't push the pace and pressure. I'm wondering, over the course of this 17-year career, fighting since he was 16 years old, does he still have that pit bull in him to go out there and win a close fight? He didn't show that against Gleason Tabao. His submission skills and his groundwork is excellent, elite level, but he can't stop takedowns. That won't be a factor in this fight, but when you go back and watch the fight against Ray Cooper, three full rounds, on his back, could not stop takedowns. He knew that after two rounds and still couldn't stop it from happening in round three. Looking at the profile for Mr. Brett Cooper from California, he went 7-5 and five overall in Bellator. He went 0-2 in KSW, and he's got a 1-0 record overall in the PFL. He was the Bellator Season 8 middleweight tournament runner-up, former ACB welterweight champion. He's a family man, married with a daughter. Looking at Brett Cooper's tapology, he fought Alexei Efremov 2019, a legal knee. He got the win there at ACA 103. There was some notable people in attendance. Chimaev was in the corner of Alexei Efremov, and the fight was being refereed by the one and only Herb Dean. Just to give you an idea of Alexa Efremov, he's two and six in his last eight fights. Right before the illegal knee happens, he's getting his ass whooped. He's against the fence. He's got one knee up. He's covered up. He's basically about to say, I'm done. I'm just covering up for good here. He's getting his ass completely beat up by Alexei. For whatever reason, Alexa has a complete mental lapse 
and starts throwing knees while Brett Cooper clearly has one knee down. Herb Dean's like looking at it. He's like, is that an illegal knee? It's like three illegal knees in a row. And then finally Herb Dean comes in and stops it. And you see Cooper's like, hey man, do you see illegal knees going on? Have no idea what Alexei was doing. He was clearly winning that fight. He ends up losing the fight to the illegal knee. They give the win to Brett Cooper. That's how he pulls off the victory there in 2019 against Alexei Efremov, who was whooping his ass every part of the fight up until that moment. His last fight, Tyler Hill, 2021, round one TKO win. It was held on a PFL card. As for Tyler Hill, he's two and six in his last eight fights. So just take that as a grain of salt. One more fight, Kendall Grove, 2014, round two TKO win in Bellator. On paper, it looks good. When you go back and watch that fight, he got his ass kicked in round one to the point where the referee almost stopped it. He was fully mounted, taking tons of ground and pound shots, hammer fists. He was not responding, but just balled up. The referee almost stopped it. The bell rings. He's lucky. It goes to round two. In round two, I got to give it to him. He lands one good, clean overhand right that drops Kendall Grove. He jumps on top of him, finishes up with a few ground and pound strikes, and they call it TKO win for him. So that was a tale of two different fights. But in round one, he gets to the ground, has a hard time. Same thing against Alexa Efremov. He got taken to the ground, had a hard time. I imagine Rory McDonald will look to get this fight to the ground somehow. Probably will start against the fence, push him up against the fence, get some underhooks, look to get some trips or some sweeps, if not just a good old-fashioned single leg or double leg takedown to bring the fight to the ground where he knows the easiest path to victory. The one thing I do like about Brett Cooper, he's got a pretty good finish rate. He's finished five of his last six fights. At times, he showed to have a good solid chin, not over the course of his entire career, but in some moments with the fight against Efremov, he did show a good chin, took a beating. He gets the win there because of the illegal knee, but up until that point, he was taking a beating. He took it pretty well and showed a solid chin. My concerns for Brett Cooper, very low activity. He's fought one time in the last two years, and there are some durability concerns. He's been finished in all four of his most recent losses, three of those by TKO and one by submission. And he's been finished in six of his last eight losses. The numbers suggest Rory McDonald wins here by decision, but it wouldn't be surprising if he overwhelms Brett Cooper at some point in round two or round three in top position, lowering hammer strikes, elbows, and the referee has to step in and stop the fight. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Cooper versus Grove, 2016. Cooper vs. Efremov, 2019. McDonald vs. Tabau and McDonald vs. Cooper, both those fights were held last year in PFL. To watch those four fights as part of our free video library, in the description down below, you'll see four links for those four fights. My final thoughts on these two fighters. I give Rory McDonald the edge in experience, fighter IQ, and cardio. If anyone gets a finish in this fight, it's probably Rory McDonald by submission. Neither guy has been a big finisher recently, so I'm giving them about the same rating in terms of finishing ability. For boxing, I think Rory McDonald's a tighter boxer, more technical, throws more volume. As for grappling, Brett Cooper is not a good grappler or a good wrestler. For Rory McDonald, he's not a good wrestler, but he's a good grappler, and if he's the one who's got the advantage with grappling, he'll find a way to get the fight to the ground. The easiest path to victory for McDonald in this fight is going to be working on the ground. And lastly, who has more heart? I've seen Brett Cooper ball up and get beat up and not return punches and more or less just give up. It happens to good fighters. I'm not saying he's not a tough guy, but I've seen it on film where he balls up and says, no mas. For McDonald, he's fought in some wars with some very good fighters. He's been a champion for a reason. When it comes to who has more heart, here, I got to give the edge to the former champion, Rory McDonald. He's been in there with some tougher opponents. I believe in round two or round three, if Rory puts the right pressure on him, he can finish the fight. The two props I like the most of this fight. I think the fight goes the distance. I like Rory McDonald to win. At minus 400, it's a little bit chalky, but he probably gets it done. The problem is recently, he's not been getting it done by finish. I believe at this point in his career, he's not showing that killer instinct. If he takes this fight to the ground, it could be an ugly three round match, very slow. He'll be working for submissions. If he can't get them, he'll win the fight and score cards for position control. It won't look amazing. It'll be a little bit boring, but I believe Rory McDonald gets the win here. On the flip side, the best version of Rory McDonald comes out, pushes the pace and pressure, finds good position on the ground, and gets a TKO victory from ground and pound. 
And that leads me to my second prop. I like Rory McDonald by a TKO. The money line just got released before we did this video. So the money line you see here on the screen, if you're watching on YouTube, or the one we talked about earlier, minus 400 for McDonald and plus 300 for Cooper. That is accurate as of Tuesday evening of this week. It'll probably move around a little bit. I expect Rory McDonald to get steamed upwards around minus 550 to minus 600. He's a popular fighter. People know him. And he outmatches Brett Cooper in almost everywhere of this fight. That's the breakdown, guys. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. We love feedback, positive and negative. Don't be too mean. But give us your thoughts. Do you have a prop that you like that we haven't talked about? Are we underestimating Brett Cooper? His profile picture looks like he's a pretty cool, laid-back dude from California, smoking some doobies, surfing the waves, you know? Anyway, guys, thanks again for joining us. Enjoy the fight, and we're on to the next one. Here we go. Next up, we have a lightweight bout at 155 pounds between the veteran Anthony Pettis, who goes by Showtime, and Miles Price, who goes by Magic. Price is 11-7 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails from Ireland, 33 years old, about to be 34. Six foot in height with a 74-inch reach. He trains out of Team Rayano MMA. As for Showtime Pettis, 24-12 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. He hails from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 35 years old, 5'10 in height with a 73-inch reach. He trains out of Rufus Sports MMA Academy, where he's a co-owner. According to the public votes on Tapology, Pettis is the strong favorite, getting 96% of the votes, compared to only 4% coming in for price but the money line is a little bit closer minus 260 for pettis currently and plus 200 on the other side for price i'm going to get it out the way right now i do like miles price to win the fight it pains me to pick against pettis he's a legend in the business former ufc champion he's a very well-liked guy he won his last two fights in the ufc i just believe right now at this point in his career he's slowing down the volume's not there as it used to be and he's losing fights recently against guys that he would have easily beat years ago he's just not the same fighter he used to be and it makes sense he's been in the fight game for a long time there's something called wear and tear Father time, it catches up to you. And for some of those reasons, I believe that Miles Price is set up here to win the fight. We'll talk about both fighters in detail, but I want to get out of the way right now. I believe Miles Price as an underdog is going to win this fight. Let's talk about the profile of Anthony Pettis first. He was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with his two brothers. His family is part Puerto Rican and part Mexican. His grandfather changed his last name from Perez to Pettis to try to avoid racial discrimination when he came to the United States. If his grandfather had not changed the name, his name would be Anthony Perez instead of Anthony Pettis. He started Taekwondo training and boxing at the age of five years old. He began training at Rufus Sport Academy when he was 18 years old. He's a black belt in BJJ. He's also a black belt in Taekwondo, former WEC lightweight champion, former GFS lightweight champion, and former UFC lightweight champion. He fought in UFC from 2011 to 2020. He won his final two fights in the UFC before being let go. He's earned fight of the night several times, KO of the night several times, submission of the night, and performance of the night in the UFC. He's the only fighter ever to knock out Stephen Thompson. Sadly, when he was a teenager at the age of 16, his father was killed in a home intrusion while hanging out at a friend's house. It was especially tough for him and his younger brothers. They were all very close with his father. Anthony Pettis is a co-owner of Rufus Sports Academy and the Showtime Sports Bar in Milwaukee. He received the Certificate of Achievement Award in 2013 from the governor of Wisconsin. His last opponent, he fought Roush Monfio last year, lost by decision. He came in as a minus 200 favorite. Looking back at that money line, it was way off. Monfio is now 5-0 in the PFL, and he won the lightweight championship last year in PFL, got the million-dollar prize. Monfio was able to back up Pettis most of the fight. Pettis looked like he was hesitant to engage. Not sure if there was something going on in this camp, maybe there was an injury, but he didn't really want to mix it up. In the past, he's got a fighter where he doesn't necessarily back away from contact. In that fight, he looked uncomfortable, or maybe he had a lot of respect for Monfio's power. Needless to say, he gets backed up for all three rounds. Even though the fight was close coming into round three, round three was not close. He got dropped multiple times in round three. Matthew started landing hard punches and Pettis, who's had a pretty good chin over most of his career, pretty durable fighter, did not look very durable in round three of their fight. His prior fight, Clay Collard, 2021 decision loss. He was a minus 570 favorite in that fight. That was his first fight in the PFL. He came in obviously very hyped up, former UFC champion, and Clay Collard came in and picked him apart. Collard's 3-1 in his last four mixed martial arts fights. He just fought recently. He's been looking very good, a solid boxer, but it was the pace and pressure. Once again, Anthony Pettis was lacking the urgency to engage. 
He was backing up most of the fight. Kyler was chasing him down. Lower leg kicks, body kicks, and Pettis looked again very uncomfortable, much like the Monfio fight. If you look back at the full topology of Anthony Pettis, you're going to see a list of very well-known names, future UFC Hall of Famers, people like Nate Diaz, Donald Cerrone, Tony Ferguson, Dustin Poirier, Max Holloway, Clay Guida, Benson Henderson, Jim Miller, Charles Oliveira, who he beat in 2016 by guillotine choke in round three. He also defeated Michael Chiesa via submission in round two in 2018. He also knocked out Steven Thompson in 2019 with a Superman punch, and he's also grappled with Jorge Masvidal in a grappling tournament. The bottom line is he has a lot of experience, has fought some of the best guys in the business. And that's a good transition to the things we like about Anthony Pettis. He's held belts in multiple different promotions. He's got solid durability. Yes, he's been finished over the course of his career, sometimes by injury, but over the last three years he's not been finished he's showing good durability even at the end of his career he's a balanced fighter doesn't do anything amazing at least not anymore but he's good on the ground he's good in the feet he can still submit somebody if they get the wrong position with him a very well balanced fighter he can win the fight on the feet or on the ground my concerns for anthony pettis how much does he have left in the tank these last two losses weren't ugly losses but the anthony pettis of old would have won these fights his urgency is not there he doesn't engage as much as he used to he's on his heels a lot doesn't look like the old fighter that we're used to and so you have to start asking the question is it age is it the injuries is it combination of both he's only 35 but that 35 is like dog years 35 he's been around a long time he's fought in some wars he was on the very very top at one point and clearly when you're on the top which way can you go from there down he's slowly going down came to the pfl as a hyped prospect in the pfl because he had his success in the ufc and again multiple belts and different promotions his brother's not the champion in bellator it just seems like right now over the course of the career the injuries are adding up father time's catching up with him and i think unfortunately we're seeing the last of anthony pettis i don't believe he wins this fight i think the money line's being infected because of his name because of the popularity and i like the guy i don't like choosing against him but miles price is an enigma we'll talk more about him in a second but he's the kind of guy who can come in here crash the party have an ugly fight and and beat Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis is 5-7 and seven over his last 12 fights, clearly below 500 at this point in his career, and that's 12 total fights. It's not a small sample size. He's having a hard time even staying at 500, and he suffered some serious injuries over the course of his career. When you're younger, they'll heal up. When you get older, they find a way to rear their ugly head again. Those little pains you had before when you were a younger athlete, they become bigger pains when you get older, and we're seeing some of the results of that at the end of his career. As for Miles Price from Ireland, he took his first amateur bout when he was 16 years old. He made his pro debut in 2008 for a regional promotion in Ireland. He also fought for Cage Warriors, Bellator, Brave CF, and BA MMA. He fights out of an orthodox stance. His last opponent, Peter Quilly, who just recently fought against one of the Pitbull brothers for the championship in Bellator. In any case, he gets a win over Peter Quilly 2019, three years ago. Split decision win at Bellator 217 as the co-main event. He was a plus 300 underdog in that fight. He got busted up in round one, was cut up, bleeding a little bit, but still made his way to get a victory in that fight i do believe he won the fight the fans were not so happy even though he's from ireland it was more of a peter quilly crowd there much of the fight was against the cage it was a bit of an ugly fight but he does keep the fight in his wheelhouse close dirty boxing lands good strikes definitely owns the control time in round three he takes down peter quilly he has top control position then gets back control position it's boring it's ugly but that's the path to victory in this fight against anthony pettis of course pettis is a nasty bjj practitioner a black belt in that discipline but miles price has a way of draining on you like i said before he's an enigma he's a leech if he gets a hold of pettis drags him down gets him against the fence starts owning position time that's his path to winning the fight in the scorecards and not for nothing peter quilly is a decent level fighter i would even argue that peter quilly right now is at the same level if not even better than anthony pettis another prior fight norman park he fought him in 2018 lost that fight by decision that was in brave cf now he lost that fight because he got out wrestled simply put on the feet he was piecing up park 
on the ground. He was losing position control time, couldn't get out of it, couldn't reverse position, and it was a bad fight for him overall. Not a good matchup. He's fought Norman Park twice in his career and both times have lost by decision. Some things I like about Miles Price. He works well in the clinch. He likes to muck things up and make the fight ugly. That's a good way of neutralizing Anthony Pettis' striking game. He's good with leg kicks, good at range, good with punching combinations. He doesn't mind winning an ugly fight by getting position control, back position, or some type of submission position and riding that out for the entire round of the entire fight. If Anthony Pettis allows this guy to get his hands on him and get into a clinch situation, that's going to be game over for Anthony Pettis. If it stays in the open, he's got a shot. Anthony Pettis is a very good striker, elite level. He's got a variety of amazing kicks that he can offer up. He's a black belt in Taekwondo. But if the fight gets to the cage, it gets to the ground, that's clearly the wheelhouse of Miles Price. And he's got decent combinations. When he lets his hands go, Miles Price is a decent striker. If you watch the fight against Norman Park, he's winning the fight in the feet. There's no question he's piecing up Norman Park, but Park's able to get the fight to the ground. Anthony Pettis will not be looking to initiate grappling or wrestling. He's going to be looking to fight from the outside. It'll be up to Miles Price to close the distance, which I believe he can do. Make it ugly, drag it to the ground. Both these guys cut easily. It just depends on who cuts each other first. And of course, if they both get cut, then whatever, it's going to be a neutral point. In a close fight, whoever's bleeding is probably going to be the person losing that round on the scorecards. Now, my concerns for Miles Price, we just mentioned before, he does cut very easily. In the Quilly fight, he cuts so easily, you couldn't even tell where the cut came from. It was like he was just rubbing heads with the guy, next thing you know, he was cut. I do expect both these guys to be bleeding at some point in this fight. And of course, the layoff, that's a big issue. He's fought one time in the last three years. His last fight was against Quilly in 2019. Will he have some octagon rust? Probably. Not really sure what he's doing the last few years, but at the age of 34, the last time he fought, he was 31. Not the time to be taking these big layoffs. And lastly, other than the win over Peter Quilly, he hasn't really fought good-level competition. He's fought more or less low-level guys and lost to some of those guys. His record speaks for itself. He's 11-7 and seven overall. The fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Pettis versus Collard last year, Pettis versus Monfield from last year, Price versus Park from 2018, and Price versus Quilly from 2019. To watch those four fights as part of our free video library, just look down below in the description. You'll see those four links. My final thoughts in this fight. I believe Anthony Pettis has an experience advantage and a fighter IQ advantage for all the reasons we talked about. He's been a champion in multiple different promotions, was a former UFC champion, has had a very good career, He's now evolved into a business owner. Overall, smart dude, very well liked. Again, got to give him the experience and IQ advantage in this fight. Neither one of them seems to have gas tank issues. Finishing ability, I do love the submission ability of Anthony Pettis, but recently has not been showing up. In the case of Miles Price, same thing. Has some finishes in his background, just not very recently. So I strongly believe this fight goes a distance. For boxing, again, very similar. I think Miles Price throws nice combinations at times, even though he's better at the dirty boxing. Pettis is the prettier looking striker. More of a flashier striker, leg kicks, spinning wheel kicks. But again, not sure how effective that's going to be in a fight where he's going to be forced to fight a little bit closer distance. So from a boxing standpoint, these guys are very similar. The grappling edge. Who has the grappling edge? Miles Price is a clincher, a grabber, maybe a little stronger than the clinch. Pettis might be a little bit better with submissions. Again, I don't think anyone gets submitted in the fight, but I think position control will matter. I have to give a small edge to Miles Price in the fact that he likes to clinch. He looks to work against the cage, whereas Anthony Pettis wants to circle and stay away from that. Who has more heart? Who has more passion? I got to give the edge to the former champion, Anthony Pettis. He's been to the top of the mountain in this sport. He's still fighting. A lot of charisma. Very well liked. Miles Price is a dog too, but he hasn't fought in three years. So who wants it more? Who has more passion? I do have to give a slight edge there to the former champion, Anthony Pettis. The two props I like the most for this fight. I like the fight going to decision. It might get ugly at times. You might hear some boo birds in a small arena. Nonetheless, I believe this fight goes the full distance. I think Miles Price uses some clinching, some ugly, dirty boxing. I think Anthony Pettis will have some moments when, the, when he's out in the open, but they won't be enough to win the fight. The second prop I like is Miles Price by decision. Now, on the money line, he's plus 200. Imagine now the prop by decision would be like plus 450, plus 500. Some good plus money. 
money. The writing's on the wall, guys. Anthony Pettis is coming to the tail end of his career. I don't like saying it. I think the guy is a quality individual, has had an amazing career. All due respect to the future UFC Hall of Famer. But Father Time has caught up. The injuries have caught up. Don't get mad at me. I do like Anthony Pettis. I don't like rooting against him. It's not a great matchup for Pettis. If it was more of a striking matchup, then Pettis would have a better shot here. That's the breakdown, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And we're on to the next video. Here we go. The co-main event for PFL number three is going to be a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Ray Cooper III, the champion from last year who goes by Brada Boy, going up against Carlos Leal, who goes by the Lion, who's a late replacement in this matchup. Leal is 16-3 overall. He's 5-0 in his last five fights. He hails out of Cutaliba, Parana, Brazil. 29 years old, 5'11 in height with a 72-inch reach. He's out of Thai, Brazil. As for Ray Cooper III, he's 24-7-1 overall, 5-0 in his last five fights. He hails out of Hawaii, where he was born and raised, 29 years old, 5'7 in height with a 70-inch reach. He's out of 808 Fight Factory. Carlos Leal will have about a two-inch reach of advantage and about a four inch height advantage in this matchup. As for the votes coming in on Tapology, not to my surprise, Cooper III is getting 94% of the votes, only 6% coming in for Leo. Of course, Ray Cooper is the two-time champion in the PFL. Twice he's won the $1 million prize. Congratulations for Mr. Cooper. Very good fighter, amazing wrestling background. We'll talk more about that when we go over his profile. Let's talk about the profile for Ray Cooper III. He was born in Hawaii, he still trains and lives there. His father is Ray Cooper Jr., who's a former mixed martial arts fighter himself. He began wrestling at the age of six years old. Him and his four brothers were all state champions in Hawaii. Ray Cooper himself was a three-time state champion in Hawaii. His younger sister also wrestled in high school and his wife was a former state champion in high school as well it runs in that family after high school ray cooper turned down a college scholarship to pursue a career in mixed martial arts he began his amateur career in 2011 he went 3-0 as an amateur he has the fastest pfl knockout in history with an 18 second ko win over pavel kush some of the notable opponents in ray cooper's tapology he fought magomed magomed karamov last year round three tko win an exciting fight he was a little bit hurt in round three his will to win was on display he comes back shakes off being hurt ends up knocking out magomed karamov in route to winning the 2021 pfl championship in the one million dollar prize notably he came into that fight as a plus 180 underdog and that's a theme of his most recent fight his prior fight against Roy mcdonald last year he came in as a plus 130 underdog he ragdolled mcdonald for three full rounds now plus 130 is not necessarily a dog it's pick and price but the point is his last three fights magomed karamov came in as plus 180 mcdonald plus 130 and then against nikolai alexkin plus 120 he came into that fight it was a fairly even first round he used his takedowns to secure position control on the feet it was even but on the ground that's where he butters his bread he used that in the fight against nikolai to secure a win so last three fights he was a dog coming into each of those fights he also fought john howard 2019 round one ko loss john howard of course had a stint in the ufc he fought chris curtis 2019 beat him by round two tko and of course, Curtis is now currently signed to the UFC, where he's on a two-fight winning streak. He had a draw against Saddam Hussein in 2019. He fought Magomed Magomed Karimov again in 2018, lost the fight via round two submission. Made the changes, obviously came back in the rematch and won that fight last year. He fought Jung Young Park 2017, submission loss. Park is currently in the UFC. And then he fought Jake Shields 2018, beat him twice by decision. And of course, Shields had a run in the UFC as well. Some things to like about the defending champion, Ray Cooper. He's fought a wide range of talented fighters. Fighters that are UFC caliber, Bellator fighter, and obviously PFL caliber. Lost some fights, but over the course of his career, has been able to hold his own against some of the top guys that he's fought against. He's, of course, a two-time PFL champion, two-time winner of the $1 million prize. He has an elite wrestling background. You know those fighters who come into mixed martial arts and have all these wrestling accolades and they don't use it in the octagon? Not Ray Cooper. Ray Cooper uses his wrestling in the octagon to secure fights. Look at the fight against McDonald. He literally takes McDonald to the ground, holds him there for three full rounds, gets an easy win. Yes, a little bit boring, but still uses his wrestling to secure victories. He hasn't lost a fight in almost three years. His last loss was against John Howard in 2019 and of course John Howard has UFC pedigree my concerns for Ray Cooper he can get a little sloppy at times when you look at the fight against Magomed Karamov that's why he gets hurt his hands are a little bit low he throws with a lot of power gets off balance I think he has a little bit too much confidence in his chin at times he may have some durability issues but it may be premature 
For example, he's been finished in five of his last seven losses. He was TKO'd in both of his most recent losses. Granted, those fights were about three years ago, but still, when he loses, he tends to get finished. That also speaks to his heart and his passion and his will to keep fighting. He doesn't have a reputation for having bad cardio, but the way he fights makes you concerned. He wrestles a lot. Wrestling takes a lot of energy. If he blows his wad early in fights, I've seen him get a little tired. Against Maga Makaramov, that's part of the reason why he got cracked in round three of that fight. Now, at the same time, he gets a second win. He comes back and wins the fight. So he's not the kind of guy who will completely gas out and then have no energy later on. He'll have a second win, but you have to be concerned at times about his approach. He's a big time wrestler. He throws with a lot of power. Those high energy movements can make him a little bit tired. I just kind of wonder if the cardio can become a problem later in a fight against a good opponent. As for Carlos Leo coming in as the late replacement with about a week's notice, he's from Brazil. He fought his first pro fight in 2012 in the regional promotions down in Brazil. He's currently 5-0 between PFL, Bellator, and LFA. He had a recent fight. He fought against Corey Coop earlier this year in the PFL Challenger Series. Had a round one TKO win. It was a very one-sided fight. He came out, charged after Coop, took him to the ground, started beating the hell out of him, and the guy just completely balled up, and that was the end of that. Coop is 9-5 overall. Looks like he's not necessarily PFL caliber, let alone Bellator or UFC caliber. Easy win there for Carlos Leo. The problem is you can't decipher much from that fight, and I can't find much other film on Carlos Leo. I have this record of 16-3, 5 in his last 5 fights, excellent durability, he's never been finished before, and he hasn't lost a fight in 8 years. 2014 is the last time he lost a fight. A lot of things to like. When you compare that with Ray Cooper, who leaves open opportunities to get cracked and has been finished in 5 of his last 7 losses, there's at least a slight outside chance that Carlos Leo can come in here, look pretty good, and possibly crack Ray Cooper and get a win. The current money line has Ray Cooper at minus 400, with Carlos Leo on the other side at plus 300. Seems a little disrespectful. I get it. It's a late notice. I get it. Ray Cooper's the defending champ. I'm not going to overplay Ray Cooper. I'm not going to play him straight up. Too chalky for my liking. The best prop bet to look at this fight might be the fight just not going the distance. Ray Cooper has some finishing power. If he takes Carlos Leo to the ground and grinds it up for three full rounds like he did to Rory McDonald, then it could be a decision win. But if he doesn't go to the ground and he stays on his feet and they start cracking each other and Carlos Leo forces the fight to be on the feet and forces it to be a brawl, now we have the chance of the fight not going the distance. So the spot that I like the most in this fight is the fight not going the distance. If that prop's available to you, that might be the best spot. The second prop to look at would be one of the two fighters by TKO. I think at some point, it gets violent here. Carlos Leo's coming in as a late replacement. Usually what that means is the fighter will come in knowing that he doesn't have the full camp, not the full cardio. He'll push pace early, look to get the fight over with within round one, round two. If he does that, he can either finish Ray Cooper or possibly expose himself, get tired, and even grind it out later on in the fight. Either way, I think this fight is not the distance. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Leal vs. Coop 2021. We watched Ray Cooper vs. Magomed Karamov part one and part two. Cooper vs. McDonald and Alexin from last year as well. To watch those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In the description, you're going to see those five links. My final thoughts on this fight. The experience advantage is clearly on the side of Ray Cooper. Obviously, two-time champ in the PFL has fought the better strength of schedule. For fighter IQ, it's hard for me to judge Carlos Leal. I've seen limited film on him. As for Ray Cooper, I think he's an amazing fighter. Very exciting, but he does have some holes in his game. He does expose his chin. He is susceptible to getting finished. So from fighter IQ standpoint, I'm going to give these guys a push. For cardio, I imagine Ray Cooper's going to be better shape. He had a full camp. Carlos Leal's coming in here with a week's notice. So the cardio edge should be with Ray Cooper. They're both decent finishers. Not super high-level finishers, but they both have finishing ability. For boxing, both guys are okay at boxing. Ray Cooper throws with a lot of power. If he connects, of course, he can knock you down. Look at Magomed Karamov, what happened in that fight. He was losing that round. He was hurt himself. He drops a few bombs on Magomed Karamov and ends the fight. As for Carlos Leal, I believe he comes out here pushing a heavy pace, trying to finish the fight early. I give a strong edge to Ray Cooper in the grappling and wrestling. If he decides to wrestle Carlos Leal for the three rounds, he'll have an easy path to victory. If he decides to stand and trade, 
Who knows what the fuck happened? And lastly, who has more heart? I'm going to give the edge to Ray Cooper, the guy's two-time PFL champion. He's a wonderful story, comes from a great background of combat sports, multiple time state champion, has been doing this for a long time. And when he's in a dogfight, the dude shows up. Again, that fight against Magomed Karimov, he is very hurt in that round, comes back and wins the fight. As for Carlos Leal, in his defense, I haven't seen enough film on him. He hasn't really been tested in the film that I have seen. He hasn't faced the type of opponents that Ray Cooper has. Could he come in here, give an amazing effort on one week's notice, and we look back and say, man, this guy's got a lot of heart? Win or lose, yes, we can see that. But for right now, I'm going to give the edge to Ray Cooper, who's the defending champion. That's the breakdown, guys. I'm not going to be betting Ray Cooper with confidence. If I put him into a few parlays, it'll be very limited. I think, again, the prop bet of the fight, knock on the distance, is the best betting spot here. Carlos Leo might be that live dog. I think him and Miles Price in the main card have a legitimate chance to come in here and spoil things. We are up to the main event for PFL number three. It's going to feature a women's bout between Kayla Harrison, the former champion from last year, versus Marina Moknakina. Marina is 6-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. She hails out of St. Petersburg, Russia, about to turn 34 years old, 5-6 in height with a 66-inch reach. She trains out of Sambo Peter. As for Kayla Harrison, the Olympian, two-time PFL champion, tons of accolades. She's undefeated at 12-0, obviously 5-0 in her last five fights. 31 years old in 10 months, so about to be 32. She's 5'8 in height, 2 inches taller than Marina, and she has the same reach at 66 inches. She trains out of American Top Team in Coconut Creek, Florida. As for the numbers on Tapology, by no surprise, 98% of the votes are coming in for Harrison, only 2% for Marina. It makes sense. Harrison should win the fight. One thing I'm going to talk about in this breakdown is how do we crack the code on Harrison? How can she lose? Who does she remind me of she reminds me of a former fighter that was once very dominant a female fighter and eventually they cracked the code on her there's going to be someone who comes along and defeats her at some point it's not going to be marina maknakina but someone's going to come along, specifically a striker, and give her a hard time. We'll talk more about that as we break down this film. Looking at the background of these two fighters, let's talk about Kayla Harrison first. She was born and raised in Ohio. She started training judo at the age of six years old. Her mother was the one who got into judo because her mom was a black belt in judo herself. She started training under a notable judo coach in her early teenage years. His name is Daniel Doyle. She won two junior national titles by the age of 15 under his coaching. Unfortunately, this coach was sexually abusing her for years. It ends up coming out through a teammate who notified her mother. He was convicted and sent to jail for 10 years. In the wake of this tragedy happening, she leaves Ohio, change of scenery, moves to Boston, starts training under Jimmy Pedro and his father. She's a 2010 judo world champion, sixth degree black belt in judo, two-time Olympic gold medalist, 2012 and 2016 Olympics respectively. She, of course, won the PFL title, the million-dollar prize, last year, and then also in 2019. She would have won in 2020 as well, but 2020, the pandemic precluded PFL from having a season. Some of her most notable opponents the last few years, she fought Larissa Pacheco, 2019, decision win. She came into that fight as a minus 1,400 favorite, and she won by decision. Going back and watching that film, it's my opinion that was her toughest competition to date. And there was a moment in that fight, just a moment, where Larissa Pacheco had back control, was getting her hooks in. You hear the announcers saying, oh my gosh, we've never seen Kayla Harrison in a rough position like this. It was a glimpse into the fact that she's not unbeatable. She's not perfect. There are some things in her game that need to be improved, and eventually someone comes along and exposes those weaknesses. So in that fight, again, as a minus 14, favorite she wins by decision that money line was off larissa pacheco's a pretty damn good fighter as we know right now and she had her in a situation where maybe things work out differently she could have gone for a submission now good luck submitting kayla harrison right she's so thick and so strong the next four fights are the four fights that she had last year in the pfl on her way to winning the championship listen to these names taylor gordado she beat her by submission in round two gordado is three and two overall and that was her last opponent she fought in the PFL last year to win the title. Janae Fabian, who's fighting on this card, 2021 round one TKO win. She ran through Fabian. Fabian is four and two overall. Her prior fight, Cindy Dondois, 2021 round one armbar win. Cindy is 16 and seven overall, no high level experience, and she's 0 and two in the PFL. 
and the first fight she fought last year in the regular season, Marina Marias, who's 17 and 12 overall. She beat her in round one via TKO. These are very low level opponents and good for her. She's winning right now in this situation. In this environment, she's eating these people up, but she's not being tested. She's not fighting anyone. It makes sense why she resigned with the PFL. Why go to the UFC, get paid less money, or why go to Bellator, get paid less money? She gets a million dollars a year guaranteed. She's going to win the title again this year, and she's fighting complete cans. Until the PFL evolves, until they get better fighters, she will own this division. Some bullet points are the things I like about Kayla Harrison, the obvious points. She's very powerful, built very strong, looks very strong, is strong. She does lean on her judo background to get nice sweeps and takedowns. When she gets top position on the ground, like a full mount position with that nice stocky body she has, it's Aladdin for her opponent. And lastly, she simply levels above all of her opponents. She reminds me a lot of Lance Palmer. When Lance Palmer ran through the division for two years and got two back-to-back -back $1 million prizes for the PFL, he looked amazing. Last week, he fought against Wade. We talked about this in a breakdown, that his road to glory in the PFL, there were no bumps in the road. There was no competition. I'm not blaming Lance Palmer. I'm not blaming Kayla Harrison. Get a million dollars a year. Stay here. Don't go out there and fight the likes of Amanda Nunes and other top fighters. Stay here in the PFL. Make your money. Promote the organization. All is well. Fight these cans. Keep eating these cans. But the reality is she's not fighting anybody. Larissa Pacheco is by far her toughest opponent to date. Now, my concerns for Kayla Harrison, and here's what I want to talk about. How do we crack the code on her? How does she lose her first fight? She's not been tested, number one. She's not faced real adversity. Hasn't been cut, hasn't been hurt, hasn't had to recover in the octagon. Her toughest matchup by far was against Pacheco, and in that fight as a minus 1,400 favorite, it was closer than she thought. It went to decision. She didn't finish her. And last but not least, and here's the comparison I want to make about who she reminds me of. She reminds me of Ronda Rousey. She's also coming from judo background, the same background as Ronda Rousey. When Ronda Rousey was in her heyday, she was unbeatable. Arm bars in 10 seconds, defeating everyone and their mother. The world of mixed martial arts surrounded around Ronda Rousey, and she blew up the brand. She put mixed martial arts on the map, especially for women. The UFC loved her. She became their golden goose, a lot like Conor McGregor, and all was well, and she looked completely unbeatable. We didn't know if she had a chin or not. We didn't really worry about the striking so much. We were just thinking, oh, arm bars, arm bars, and then she goes in there against an elite level striker, Holly Holmes, and everything changes. She gets cracked. She gets exposed. We see that she doesn't have an amazing chin. We see that she doesn't have really good striking skills. And if the fight is on the feet and she's forced to fight in that method against an elite level kickboxing world champion, she loses. For Kayla Harrison, here's how I see it happening. It's not going to be a submission person like Marina. Can an elite level submission person give her some problems? Yeah, Larissa Pacheco gave her some problems on the ground. But again, it's offset by the fact that Kayla Harrison is so fucking strong and has very good durability and has good cardio. Those things check out. To get an arm bar on that moose, it's going to be tough. To get a rear naked choke on her, look at her neck. She's very jacked. So I don't see her losing on the ground to submissions. It's going to be a striker. It's going to be a lethal kickboxer, Muay Thai type of striker that forces her to fight the feet and then test the chin of Kayla Harrison, a lot like Holly Holmes when she tested the chin of Ronda Rousey. Now, there's no one in the entire division this year that's going to do that to her. I think Larissa Pacheco has the best chance of giving her at least a little bit more of a test and going three rounds and probably still losing to Kayla Harrison over the course of three rounds. When Kayla Harrison loses, loses, it's going to be against an elite level striker. Not going to be this season, but in the near future when she fights someone who's a good striker, that's going to be her kryptonite. Let's turn our attention to the Russian fighter. Looking at her profile, Marina Maknakina. She was born and raised in Russia, currently based out of St. Petersburg, Russia, which is also known as Leningrad. Six-time Sambo world champion, eight-time Russian Sambo national champion. 
Just a side note, Sambo is one of the best martial arts to train in if you're looking to transition eventually to mixed martial arts. It's got a lot of similarities. A lot of the Russian guys, even guys like Khabib Nurmagomedov, they have a lot of Sambo experience. She's 1-1 one one in Bellator. She also fought in Fight Nights Global. She started her mixed martial arts career 4-0 with four straight submission wins. Let's talk about some of her prior opponents. Janae Harding, 2019 decision loss in Bellator. Mind you, Harding is 6-6 six six overall. Marina came into that fight as a minus 25 favorite. Unfortunately, lost. She fought Liana Jojua, 2018 decision loss in Fight Nights Global 83. Jojua is 8-5 overall but she is currently in the UFC. She defeated Amanda Bell last year in Bellator. Amanda Bell is 7-8 overall and currently 2-4 her last six fights. She also defeated Claudia Zamora last year in the PFL, 2021 decision win. Claudia is 3-3 three three overall. Marina came into that fight as a minus 340 favorite, did go the full decision. That was her last fight. Bottom line, she has not fought very good competition. Very low level competition up to this point. And in some of those cases, she lost against some of that competition. Some things I do like about Marina, she's got a very accomplished background in Sambo. And as we talked about it, Sambo translates very well to mixed martial arts. She's also gotten better over the last few fights. You notice the fact that she's getting better on her feet, a little more comfortable. Now, has she made enough improvements to compete with Kayla Harrison? No, but it's good to see some improvements. She'll have a slight height advantage by about two inches in this matchup, but the reach is the same. And she's also very durable. She's never been finished before in a mixed martial arts fight. That probably changes this weekend. Kayla Harrison will most likely grind her out on the ground for some kind of a TKO win in round one or round two. Now, my concerns for Marina, she's fought extremely low-level competition. We already went through that. And this will be a gigantic step up for her. Kayla Harrison is a much better fighter in almost every area of the fight game. And Marina has not fought anyone near the potential or talent that Kayla Harrison has. And though Marina has good submission skills and she's effective on the ground, she's not going to be effective against this powerhouse. If she goes to the ground, which is where she likes to work, she's going to get mounted, top control, ground and pound. It's going to be a swift victory for Kayla Harrison. And lastly, she's going to have a power disadvantage. And that's the case with a lot of fighters that Kayla Harrison goes against. She's very powerful, a little stockier, a little shorter, has that wrestling build. The bottom line is Marina will not be able to match the power of Kayla Harrison. The fights we watched, to bring down this film, we watched Marina versus Torbiva, 2016, Marina versus Jojua, 2019, and Harrison versus Pacheco, 2019. If you want access to those three fights, just look down below here on YouTube. We've provided three links down below as part of our free video library. My final thoughts on this fight. Kayla Harrison has the experience advantage, finishing ability advantage, and boxing advantage. For fighter IQ, I think Kayla Harrison is a very good fighter and very smart, but hasn't really been tested. We just don't know what her fighter IQ is yet. We haven't seen her face a better opponent or someone who's of the same caliber as her. The same goes for Marina. Just because she's going to get her ass beat in this fight doesn't mean she's a dumb fighter. She's got some skills. She obviously didn't become a multiple-time Samba world champion and national champion if she's a dumb fighter. So I think fighter IQ-wise, these guys are about equal. For cardio, again, they both check out. They've both gotten the distance in some of their fights. They've looked pretty good in round three. Though Kayla Harrison is built like a brick house, she doesn't seem to fatigue. Very good cardio. As for the grappling department, Marina's not bad. She's got submission wins. She works well from her back. The problem here is that Kayla Harrison is simply just more powerful. From a technique standpoint, they're about equal. Kayla Harrison probably has her way on the ground just because she's simply stronger. Not technically better, just simply stronger. And lastly, who has more heart? Who has more passion? The will to win. They both have a lot of accomplishments. They've both won titles on a world stage. They're very, very good competitors. They're very well experienced. And for Marina, just to have the balls, the cojones to come in here and try to fight with Kayla Harrison, both these ladies have a lot of heart, a lot of passion. It should be good matchup unfortunately Kayla Harrison probably still grinds up Marina but the reality is I think they both have good heart and good passion that checks out for both fighters the two props that I like for this fight round one finished by Kayla Harrison and the fight not with the distance the fight not with the distance prop is probably gonna get steamed it'll be somewhere like minus 550 minus 600 the main line is out of control you got minus 5,000 for Kayla Harrison in some books and plus 1,000 for Marina I want to take a sprig on the dog just because but there's really no way that Marina wins the fight Kayla Harrison will take her to the ground she will ragdoll her and she will beat her up 
If Marina could somehow get to round three, that would be an amazing accomplishment. I mean, just even actually getting through halfway to round two would be an amazing accomplishment. At some point, the reality sets in that Kayla Harrison simply is stronger, bigger, tougher. She's just a bruiser. And that goes to my point about technique. I think when she fights a good opponent at some point who's got good technique and doesn't just muscle everything, that'll be her Achilles heel. And at some point, she just can't keep muscling her way to victories. In this situation here against Marina, she could do that. She'll outmuscle her, drag her to the ground, beat her up, hand gets raised, and she wins the fight. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And that wraps up our main event. All right, boys and girls, that brings us to the end of the show. I'm going to go over a quick review of the picks that we have to win. I'm also going to highlight the fights that we like the most. If you watch the entire video, you know in the prelims, we didn't have a lot of those lines available. We were guesstimating the money lines. By the time we got into the main card, we did have some actual money lines to offer to you guys. Our apologies if we were off a little bit in the prelims on the money lines, because again, we didn't have them available. Okay, starting from the top, we like Kayla Harrison, Ray Cooper III, Miles Price as a dog on the main card, Rory McDonald. Magomed Magomed Karimov, Julia Budd, Nikolai Alexkin, Larissa Pacheco, Al Zalwahi, Abby Montez, and Vanessa Mello. The fights that we like the most, the ones we have the most confidence in, we like Vanessa Mello, Abby Montez, and Larissa Pacheco on the prelim card. For the main card, we like Ray Cooper III and Kayla Harrison. Anyway, guys, that's the full breakdown. Thank you very much for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys soon. Deuces.